2021. This is Joe Hardcore. Hope you had a happy new year. Fuck 2020. This is Hardcore Podcast. The track you just heard was Burning Strong, Into the Light, on From Within Records. You might have heard me talk about them most of this podcast. I'm really excited about the energy that a label like From Within has. Whether it's releasing the Crutch demos earlier this year, the Mushmouth demo, everything that Carter's touch is gold. Big supporter of From Within. Happy to have Bernie Strong be the opening track for this episode. You don't need another podcast to give you top tens. There's plenty of them out there. Check them all out. For me, I'm just happy that we're on to a different phase. I don't know what exactly it's going to be. But it's better than talking about 2020, so I'm going to stop right there. If for some reason that you want to dwell on anything, dwell on the things that you took for granted and how they are something that you now relish in the opportunity to do them should the opportunity occur. Look forward to the things that you could do with your friends that you've been separated from and take care for the small things. For me, it's simple. For those who follow my Instagram, I love seeing the sun rise in the winter. I'm a big hater of the sun in the summer, but in the winter, you could see from such high views just how clear the sky is and i look forward to each day because i know that we're getting closer and closer to something better it may sound corny but that's a driving force for me so if you follow me on instagram and twitter you're going to see pictures of the sky i'm lucky to be working on a high rise so i get these opportunities and i like to share them with the world i have a lot of friends who have been constant communication be it this podcast or just checking up and i'm just really thankful that i have people that love and care for me and keep my head in check. Big shout outs to those who are listening from afar, especially those overseas serving. It's a lot to think about being in another country and your job is stabilizing an area, fighting for the country. And this dumb podcast I do just gives you a little bit of break from that. So God bless you guys out there. It's incredible that there are people that are willing to stand out and do this so we can do podcasts. So thank you. Coming up in 2021 are a lot more guests. I'm going to have a separate podcast feed down the line. I've got some recordings going on. we got some first-generation hardcore people. I'm talking not the people where I ask, hey, so what was the record that got you into hardcore? These are people in their teens or in some of them cases even their 20s when hardcore started popping up in the late 70s and early 80s. I don't even know how to do it right, so for right now I'm in the recording phase, but I'm really excited about the project nonetheless. One more time, rest in peace to so many of our friends. While we're talking about friends and those struggling, if you haven't seen some posts about Uzi Wan from Aggressive Dogs in Japan, he is fighting cancer. We're praying for him. He's a great guy and a huge part of Japanese hardcore history. We're so lucky that we got to have them at this hardcore in 2019. He has a GoFundMe. Give it some love and support, please. When I was plotting out the guests at the end of December and into January, I knew that I had to have Aram Arsalanian bring us into the 2021 year with some positivity, some kind words, and a great story about a person who grew up in Western Canada would be a huge part of one of the biggest bands in the late 2000s hardcore, as he also had a full-ass professional career as a therapist. He would later become the CEO of Cadence Leadership, and he actually has an awesome podcast as well now called One Step Beyond. Aram is someone who at different times I may have butted head with, but always came to a meeting point of friendship and love. Aram has been there through some very hard times for me and always checked in with me. And that means a lot. So let's get rocking and rolling, guys and gals. First guest, 2021, Aram 
Arcelanian. All right, we're talking to my boy Aram. A lot of people might know him from being a champion, but there are so many more layers to him, whether it was him starting React Records or his work in nonprofit therapy and now as a CEO of Cadence. And he also has a podcast, which we shared earlier with um, actually that episode we shared was no echo, but he's just an incredible person that goes beyond a guy just holding the car, a guitar and jumping around on stage. And I'm very happy that he could share some time and give us some insight into his life. Man, Ram, thanks for thank having you. me. Oh, thanks for having me, man. And thanks for the kind words. So I always ask, the, the my guests basically in your home, which obviously you're from uh, Vancouver, correct? Yep. What was the music in your house and what was the stuff that really led you to find punk rock? Okay, so that's a good question. Um, I'm from, I live in Vancouver, but I'm from Calgary, Alberta and was born in Montreal. And uh, my parents are, uh, my dad's Armenian and my mom's Irish. So it's an interesting mix for whatever reason, my parents decided to raise us more with the Armenian culture. And um, I guess my earliest memories of music would either be like kiss and cheap trick or like Armenian, you know, like traditional folk music, <laughs> like weird mix. Um, I was super drawn to uh, kiss though, like all the makeup and, you know, like just like the vibe around them was so, I don't know, like super evil and like kind of scary looking. I remember being a little kid in Montreal and looking at Kiss records and just being like, that is so sick. Like that's really, that's badass. It was like, there's just something like mysterious about it. Um, so when I got into music, I was always drawn to like a lot of the music, obviously, but also the visuals. Like, you know, like I was like looked at records and really wanted to digest like what the band was about. So that kind of carried on, was into, I was like a real early um, really like very young, I was into rap and like, I guess like, you know, I guess early hip hop. And so where a lot of the kids in my school were listening to, you know, whatever pop music from the eighties, I was listening to rap and I just happened to find it. I just happened upon it. And I found out through it. I found about it through like just the normal ways that people find out about stuff. Like, you know, like, I think it was like run DMC was my uh, gateway to that. So I got like really into rap. Um, but at the same time, I was into the music that people were into at the time, like a lot of new romantic stuff. I like the Smiths. I like the Cure. But rap was like my first thing. I was like, well, I'm really into this. And my sister got like two tapes when I was um, in the fifth. No, she I think I was in the fifth grade. She got um, BC Boys License to Ill and the Clash Combat Rock for her birthday from her friends. And I digested both of those like crazy and like that set me on the path of music, like really got me more into subculture. And there was something like, I don't know, just cool about knowing about bands that nobody else knew about and like really researching bands. And of course, like I know anyone young listening to this has got to be sick of hearing it. And I'm not saying it in like a crappy way, but like, you know, when we were young, you found out about bands through like the liner notes of records. You find out, found out about them through zines, through your friends making mixtapes. Like you couldn't just find bands. So there was always this sense of like being a bit of a detective and like figuring out what people were in what bands and what record labels existed, getting their catalogs, ordering records. And it was as much about the music as it was about the look of like what, like the layouts as it was about the hunt. And that's what really drew me more and more into punk, more and more into like straight edge hardcore though. Was, uh, I grew up in, 
I went to Catholic school my whole life and well, my, or like from kindergarten to the end of high school. And I was always drawn to the idea of like goodness and being good. But the thing is like, I grew up, like when I was a little kid, I grew up in a super unstable environment, like really like lots of wild shit happening. And I also got bullied a lot as a kid and uh, I had to like fight a lot. I got picked on a ton. So I grew up feeling like this whole like Catholic system was kind of bullshit. And cause like, you know, nobody was like looking out for some like kid from an immigrant family in Calgary, Alberta in the eighties had to learn how to fight. So I was drawn to like skateboarding at first because I was like, you know, outsider culture. I was like really into that, but I was drawn to straight edge hardcore specific specifically because of the idea of like good, good morals, good ideas, good things that were all a part of like the Catholic world, but didn't actually prove out to be true. And of course, you know, as you get older, you're like, well, that didn't necessarily prove out to be true about straight edge either. But I really like the ideas of aspiring to be a better person. And that's what drew me, drew me into it. So was it because you were buying records and tapes and you ran across the music or was it people that you ran into in school that kind of was like your first poke into the underground? Uh, it was a bit of both. So hip hop, it was just like kind of like finding out what was on like TV. There <laughs> much music. This is like the Canadian MTV. There was a, a show called, um, oh God, what was it called? There was like a half hour rap show and I like lived for that show. It was that and the Pepsi power hour. I would always, I'd learn about metal bands and rap and rap groups uh, from that. Um, getting into punk though, specifically like Thrasher had a lot to do with it. And then like seeing people in DRI shirts, like DRI, like there's something just like so gnarly about that. So it was those things that caused me to like hunt it, uh, hunt stuff down and like the pus zone in Thrasher. So it was kind of a combination of like finding stuff myself through liner notes, magazines, all that. And then people making me tapes. And there's this kid, Matt, that I grew up with his older brother, Toby, uh, who, I can't speak to him as an adult, but as a youth, he was like a straight up, like kind of classic older brother. He was like super, super shitty and like really like mean to us, but also like would give us these gems of cool stuff. Like he turned us onto Agnostic Front, Chromags, Seven Seconds, like all these bands. So he was like a real douche when we were kids, but like he always hooked us up with cool music. And, and I'm sure he's a cool adult now. So I don't know. Respect Toby. Thank you. Yeah. Big ups to Toby there. Did you, <laughs> Toby uh, Lutmer. did you, were your parents accepting of you like trying out going to concerts or was your first live music thing uh, shows? Um, so the first concert I went to the first, oh, so no, I never went to concerts and oh, okay. funny it was story, show first. Cool. It was show first. And I, I didn't even go to an actual real concert until I was like a straight up adult. I'd say like the only like real concert I've ever been to, like straight up, like huge production concert was Guns N' Roses reunion. Like, I don't know, like two years ago. Wow. I've only seen, I've seen under five concerts for sure. Definitely under five. So what was it that got you pulled out into your first actual uh, show? DRI was coming to Calgary on the thrash zone tour. And, um, it was my birthday and my friend Matt got me tickets. Matt, who's Toby's younger brother, Matt Lutmer. Either he got me tickets or I got him a ticket for his birthday. I can't remember. It was one or the other. And we were psyched. It was at this venue in Calgary called McEwen Hall Ballroom where, where all the big shows were. And so we had been listening. I was 
15, either I just turned 15 or was about to turn 16. I think I was, I think I had, I think I was 15. And, um, and I think I was about to turn 16 and we'd been listening to punk for a while. And we'd been listening to a good mix of just like, you know, your kind of classic tropes like dead Kennedy's DRI COC. And then we'd also been listening to like local bands like beyond possession ninth configuration, stuff like that. And uh, we went to the show and it was Calgary was in this interesting space because Calgary had a huge scene when we were young. So before our time and like, there's a whole part in Calgary of Calgary in a, in that movie, another state of mind. So Calgary had this like pretty legendary scene. At least it seemed legendary to me, but by the time we were entering the scene, a lot of those people had aged out and had started their like weirdo kind of indie rock bands. So it, I, I kind of look at that DRI show as almost like the last gasp of like what was transitioning into what would be. And it brought out every freak within like driving distance. It was, I mean, I'm looking at it through the mind of a 46 year old, but like looking back at it, it was insane. It was a sold out show that was probably like, I think a thousand cap room. People were doing monitor dives, like, like a headbanger dove off the, uh, the monitor feet first landed on the ground, broke both his legs, like bloody noses everywhere. People catching elbows to the teeth. Um, the two opening bands were a band called like Skull Bunny that were awful, and another band called Skin Yard, Skin Barn that were pretty good. And during Skin Barn, I was the first time I ever went into the pit, and I remember standing outside of the pit, and there's like everyone's going crazy for the open bands, and there was just this dude standing in the middle of the pit long hair one side of his head shaved like long hair on the other side wearing a leather jacket like knee-high docks it just looked so badass and he was in the middle of the pit just kind of like watching the chaos almost as if no one would dare go near him and like that kind of stuff just resonated with me so much so i started like jumped into the pit started going instantly got my nose broken the first time i ever got my nose broken in my life left the show went to the hospital got my nose popped back into place and made it back in time for DRI. Cause the, the university where the show was at had a hospital on site. Holy my parents shit. Pe- yeah, it was insane. So see all of the show, the, the, uh, the, um, the DRI show, my parents come and pick me up. So they had dropped off their 15 year old son fully intact a few hours earlier. And then they pick me up. My eyes are black. My nose is all like <laughs> screwed up. My shirt's covered in blood. And my parents are like, Oh my God. And they knew, and my mom will say this now, she's like, I knew that was it for you. Like the show, the getting your nose broken. I knew if I tried to stop you to go from going to shows after that, I would have no ability to do it. So after that, they just let me do whatever I wanted. Well, it was like a literal baptismal in blood, so to speak. I mean. Absolutely, man. It was so sick. And I wasn't bummed. Like I was like bummed because you know you're a little kid but like you can get your nose broken but i was psyched like i felt like i'd earned my stripes at my first show and i was so so psyched i i said this to a friend who thought it was crazy but there is that moment like where you know what you did and then you go to school the next day or the next time you're at school and you're like i am better than all you plebes <laughs> like you are mere mortals to me and i felt a- i felt like that as a uh transitioning into going from metal concerts to hardcore shows and just being around people in high school and just being like, you have no fucking idea. Like you are all fucking weak. Um, 
it's like a legit secret world that you're a part of. And uh, like, I remember, um, cause I think the show, I can't remember it. It was either right before summer or it was right. Yeah. It must've been, I believe it was right before summer. Um, or it was during summer and, and then like we went back to school shortly, but I went, yeah, it was back to school with a DRI sticker on my, on my binder. And people would ask me about it. And I remember thinking like, I don't want to tell you about this. This is like, you don't get it. Like I'm part of something now. And like getting that nose broken just felt like such a like, yeah, an initiation. Like I was a part of this thing now. And it was, it was cool. It was really cool. I think one of the things that we all experience in high school, if you are in that like special class, is that you try to find some identifying people or you completely have to rebel and be like the loner. Which one were you in high school? I was trying to find a people. And in trying to find a people, I was kind of a loner. So like probably I'd say something that's like been the hardest thing in my life, like for me to deal with in my life is that like I grew up, uh, my family's like not, we're close-ish now, but like there's a lot of mental health stuff in my family uh, when I was a kid. And um, I had like multiple family members who had like pretty serious mental health stuff going on. And of course, n- no one knew what that was when back then. So like, I just felt like, uh, I felt like growing up by yourself in a house full of people. And we all felt that, like all four of us felt that way. And so it left me with this like real insecurity about my relationships and my personal relationships. And like, I would vacillate between being like super vulnerable with people, like maybe like too vulnerable with people. And then like constantly trying to like present myself as being a type of way, you know, and like kind of like trying too hard. And when I was a kid, I had a group of friends, but I think they more like tolerated me. I think they felt like, um, I think they felt kind of bad for me, you know, like this guy is like clearly has like a real sense of wanting to belong, but isn't comfortable in his own skin. And like, that might be my perception as like an adult looking back on it, but it really set me on a path where like having really intense discomfort with relationships, because like I grew up in an environment where it's like, I never was quite sure what was going to happen next. So I didn't trust relationships around me. And it's something that like I've worked on a lot, but it definitely made me feel like really intense periods of being like totally isolated by people uh, from people while being around people. So I always had like a real sense of being alone. Does that make sense? So I was kind of, kind of both at the same time. Well, I, especially at that age, I feel that uh, myself, there was things that resonated with what you said, um, especially in the home, we're going to feel a certain way that makes you want to prove yourself to the people that you would consider your peers but you also don't know how to connect emotionally because you're not taught and you can't really facilitate those kind of things. So it's a real messy time, which is always what I say to people, this kind of music comes in at the right moment for us who are, you know, I mean, you're talking about, you've been in it 30 something years, man. Like this music comes in at the right time of our lives and really gives us motivation where I think a, a person in an alternate universe and different Aram who not with this music might've went a completely different path. And that's right. the importance. And, and that's the importance of this music is that way when we're having these kind of mixed emotions, you know, like, Hey, I want to hang out with you guys, but I don't know how to hang out or, you know, make establish real friendships. Cause I'm fucking crazy. Mm-hmm. 
this music kind of fosters us. So, I mean, I know that Calgary is in the basically the the not the far west, but like the center west of Canada, and it's really for what in, it's mostly industrial. So, how do, how do you uh, how is the scene out there? Besides, obviously, like of a big metal show like that, I like you especially when you said all the freaks came out. It's like, yeah, of course. What the fuck else is going to be in Calgary? But like. Was there an active hardcore scene, and and how did you get your uh, foot in that first thing, or did you have to move more to the West Coast where you got really involved with the hardcore scene in Canada? So I got to give full respect to the to the front runners of this. So um, there's this guy Ron Hadley, and and a whole crew crew of guys uh, or of people like around um, the early mid '80s that were booking shows. There was this place called the Calgary Manor. Um, that did a bunch of punk shows, like kind of punk slash into hardcore um, scene. And like, I don't know if there was ever a true hardcore scene, but there was like a punk scene that kind of developed into a bit of like a thrash scene. And, you know, SNFU were from Edmonton. So they all kind of played in the same, in the same space. And again, you know, again, total apologies to anyone young who's kind of rolling their eyes at this, but back then, because the scenes weren't big, there weren't all these different scenes so like it wouldn't be weird to have like a metal band or a thrash band and a punk band and a hardcore band and some kind of like weird like artist band and like a funk punk band all playing on the same show. So like there there was a really vibrant scene and it was headed up by this band called Beyond Possession in Calgary. And they were huge. Like they were on Metal Blade, they toured all over the world. Or maybe were they on Metal Blade? They're on Death. Um, or not in tour all over the world. They toured all over North America. Um, and they were like Calgary's like pride and joy. They were a big deal for us. And those records are still totally sick. They put out an EP and uh, LP. Um, great, great, great band. So when they broke up, people aged out and they all got into more like kind of like arty, indie, rocky stuff. And that's not me like cracking on them. That's just, you know, that's what happens. So we were coming in just at that point. That's when we started going to shows and there was like a void left by, by those people. So yeah, there were shows and there were like, you know, like some things here and there, nothing was too crazy. But then, um, so this would have been around the late eighties. So yeah, there was stuff going on, not a ton, but then grunge started to kick in and Calgary never lost its scene. There were shows, but when grunge came in, it was like, insane like all the all ages shows were fucking huge and so the lead up to grunge too like you know there was a lot of bands like of those in nature like touring through calgary so like i can in calgary there wouldn't be weird to have a show minimum minimum 100 kids but like the all ages shows would have like 200 kids 300 kids 500 kids pretty commonly so there were big shows they were really mixed bills and then when grunge finally kicked in in the 90s it was like huge 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 so it was sick um but moving from that to the hardcore scene was interesting because it was really my friends and i that made that happen and i'll totally put our stamp on that like so there were these people who were doing like more grunge based shows and there was like some festivals but it was all kind of like everything underground music but me and my friends wanted hardcore to happen because we had moved from being into like you know like the entry space bands dri dk all that stuff but we'd found out about like Agnostic Front, Chromags, Uniform Choice, Dag Nasty, Minor Threat, Embrace. Like we'd found all of these bands just through like tape trading and record inserts. And that's what we got into. And that's what we wanted to make happen. So it was 
I was in a band called All Rights Reserved, and we were kind of like a, a poor man's seven seconds. My friend Rob was in a band called Road Crew Orange, and they kind of sound like Dead Kennedys. And then my friend Carrie was in a band called Why. And I don't know, they're kind of indescribable. They're pretty unique, but they're kind of hardcore-ish. And we started playing shows, the three of us, uh, those three bands. And over time, we all became like more, got more and more to kind of like what people would recognize traditionally as being hardcore. And we all got better at our instruments and all that stuff. By the time our three bands broke up, Calgary had like a straight up hardcore scene. And I will 100% say that we caused that. And it was really cool. And then, of course, our bands died off. The scene kind of wavered. And then a whole new group of kids came in. And that's where like 90s political hardcore came in. And that was done by a whole different group of people. And I was a part of that, but then it was being totally done by other people. So I'd say like the hardcore scene, the focus hardcore scene was really kicked off by my friends and I. So let me ask you something. When you were going to do the band, did you have a drive to want to play guitar or was it just kind of like, hey, we have to start the band, figure out who's playing what and just learn? Um, well, first of all, I was going to be the singer and the initial band was called Aram and the Sheep Herders. <laughs> no joke, dude. That's fucking great, though. <laughs> and we were supposed to sound like SNFU, but like, you know, we we're just like little kids. Well, that's what I, I figured and, it was something that SNFU or something like that. Yeah. So my friend Matt already played guitar a little bit and I was going to be the singer, but we didn't have like a PA or anything, you know, like we didn't have like microphones. So Matt played guitar. Our friend Jeff, his parents bought him a drum set, like some cheap drum set. And then Matt's brother, Toby, sold me his bass for, I'm sure he ripped me off, but it was like, a, he he he, ripped, he sold me some bass that I started playing. And I so I started playing just simply out of the fact that we needed a bass player. And we didn't have a microphone. So we're like, well, let's just write songs and then we'll eventually get a microphone and one of us will become the singer. And uh, we started this band and we were just so horrible man like just terrible i listened to those recordings i'm like oh my god um but over time we got better and better and at first it was the three of us uh singing and like all we like when we got microphones like we all we all shared the vocals and then um we got this guy squeak that was his nickname to sing for a while and then we got our first real singer was this this guy jeff casey who's still like a real active musician and that's when we were like, okay, hey, we're going to be a hardcore band. And we started focusing on sounding like seven seconds. And we were like the worst version of seven seconds, but like we were given a real shot and it was cool. It was cool to like try and do that. Now you had said record inserts. Were you ordering mail order? And I know because you said tape trading or was there any kind of like record store or something that you guys could uh, get some of the releases you were getting from? Yeah, it was a bit of both. So uh, Ron Hadley, who sang in Beyond Possession, like this guy was like a... a key figure in the Calgary punk scene. So Ron worked at this place called the record store and he ordered in all of the, the, the punk stuff. And it was good. Like you could get like legit cool stuff. Cause he, he definitely had his finger on the pulse. Like he knew what to get. Um, but then Ron got married and moved to California and it was like desert Island after that, like they got stuff, but they got like yeah. the, the things you're supposed to get, like the bigger name thing. So that's where like starting to order through mail order came through and like, looking at uh, um, a record layout, getting a name, figuring out the, the like sending for a catalog from the record label, if it still existed and if they had a catalog and then going from there. Uh, one more question about the old school, something for me, uh, you mentioned SNFU. Um, a lot of American hardcore people have kind of skipped over some Canadian bands. I actually 
a Canadian who was studying in Philadelphia befriended my mom who was in college and he made my mom a tape because she said, oh, my, my my son's into thrash and metal and all this stuff. And on this tape with some songs from live at CBGB's and Carnivore was four Diglo abortion songs. Mm. Yeah. So how many how much Canada hardcore were you absorbing at that time? And I guess I would also say, do you feel like because you're Canadian, you're supposed to like that? Or were you guys all driven to find out about the stuff from the United States? So can you, it was like weird. So the way that I put it is this, all of it seemed cartoonish to me, right? Like, and I talk about this a lot. Like when I look at uh, sick of it all blood, sweat and, and no tears, or if I look at agnostic front records, like they lived in New York, like those dudes in my head, they fought through an army of skinheads to get to the show to play to skinheads. Like it yeah. just like, there was always this like <laughs> vibe of like, God, those people must be so ferocious. So like all of that stuff took on like a much bigger than life. Like you could almost like not believe that those bands existed because like you made them cartoonish in your head. Right. Yeah. So like, the Canadian bands were really accessible. And what stood out to me about the Canadian bands is they're just like older versions of us, right? Like kind of like yeah. weirdo dudes that you meet. And so like Diglo abortions, like I loved, I can't say I love them today, but like, I love those first, well, the, the second and the third LP, which most people would consider the first and the second. Like I was, I was really, really into them. And um, obviously SNFU, I still love today, like huge heroes of mine. Yeah. Uh, R.I.P. Sure. G. Pig, man. Yeah, absolutely. Man. Um, so yeah, like I loved, I love Canadian stuff and it was like in Canada, there's a lot of push behind bands, like both culturally, like Canadian bands tend to get a lot of good support from Canadians, but also like um, we have this uh, thing in Canada called factor, which is all about like promoting Canadian arts and music. And so like bands can get like factor grants and all that kind of stuff that helps propel their music into places and get them on record labels and support their tours. So there was a lot of like Canadian stuff that I, I really dug. And I'd say like, if you do a little digging, there's a lot of cool Canadian bands, but I want to give a shout out to a band that if you know about, you know, and they're called personality crisis. They're from um, Winnipeg and they put out an LP called creatures for a while. And if you listen to it at first, you're like, yo, these vocals are horrible, but actually they're totally sick. If you listen to the record the whole way through, you will find your new favorite band. Personality crisis was awesome. Um, there was like a push to get into the U.S. stuff, but again, because it was almost more like it was like cartoonish, you know, like you see, like you think minor threat, you're like, it's this black and white thinking that at least I had like minor threat. They're good people like, wow, what good people they believe in good things, you know, and like they, they live these big moral lives and like, you know, something like youth of today, it's like, oh, they're such good people. And then you listen to something like Chromex. It's like, whoa, these guys are like on the street, like street justice. You know, like it's so cartoonish that you're drawn to it. But then when you get a bit older, you're like really drawn to the, when I was a kid, I was drawn to like the way it's the, the rawness of how it sounded and the lyrics and just the vibe. But then as you get older, you get like really like sucked into like, wow, this is actually very well written. It's thoughtful music, cool layout. Um, so yeah, we were really drawn to him, but we had a lot of love for the Canadian bands for sure. So at what point do you uh, head out to the West coast in Vancouver or did it take a bit before you started heading out that way? What was your uh, transition that would get you eventually towards champion? So 
I always knew I was going to move. Um, so that feeling of kind of always being alone in groups of people, it didn't, it didn't go away. And even though I like played in a band and I had all these, like, you know, it's a group of friends or whatever, like, I just always felt like, I just always felt like the outsider. And I've actually come to really understand that and, and embrace that quite a bit now as I'm, a, as an adult, um, something that always defined me differently from everyone else is that I always wanted to take things to the furthest point possible, like to whatever it's a logical evolution could be, where it could be the best it could be. So for example, that first band I was in, we practiced three times a week for two hours at a time. And like, I would have practiced every day. Like we sucked, <laughs> like we sucked. I want to be really clear, but we stopped sucking through sheer determination. Nobody in that band was a good musician, but we stopped sucking through sheer determination. And also like not sucking is kind of like questionable because I think probably everything we did sucked in the greater scope of things, but from where we came from to what we became, it was much better. And that I've applied to my life. And that's part of why I've, I know I've always felt a bit isolated from people. I, I just really work harder than the person who's on the left and the right of me. And I, I have vision, like straight up, I know where I want to go with things and I will make those things happen. So does that come moving, from your, does that come from your family life or is that just like, like, what do you think? What do you think born that? Like, like in, in you, um, part of it's my family life. And like, when I say I grew up in like a unstable environment, like I always had food in my belly, always had clothing. Like we, we grew up kind of like lower middle-class, but we were, we were certainly not like, I didn't have to go without, but I grew up in an environment where I didn't know what was going to happen next. And I didn't know what was going to happen next at home. I didn't know if there was going to be like a huge screaming match and people like throwing things. I didn't know if like something would go missing from my room for months. And like, I'd look all over the house for it. And then like, it would suddenly reappear. I didn't know if I was going to walk down the street and get beat up by a bunch of kids. I didn't know if one of my parents was just going to leave and then not come back for a while. Like it was weird. It was a, it was a, it was very it was an intense way to live. And I know people listening to that might be like, that's nothing. Like I had this or other people might be like, wow, that's crazy. All I could say is that like being a super sensitive kid and feeling like there was no, there was no place where I felt safe at any time. And not that I felt something like I didn't, like, I didn't feel like um, I was never, I never had any experience of like sexual assault or anything like that, but I definitely had lots of experience of like physical violence outside of the home and incredible intensity within the home at all times. There was a constant level of tension in the house. So I grew up having to figure shit out constantly. And I was always on my toes. I was always like on edge that something was going to happen. So I just developed a, uh, the only one who's going to get me out of this is me. And I need to like figure my way out of it. And I need to build things around me. I need to have like get out plans. I need to have like something that backs me up. So I spent a lot of time trying to develop friendships that were like family. And that really never, ever worked out for me because like my need for friendship, what I would need from my friendship tended to be more than the average person would have who, who'd want, who would come from like a, a healthy family. And like my need for security with my friends was like kind of unhealthy. So that never worked out. Like that was always weird. And so I just like developed a habit of outworking everybody. I outworked everybody to be safe. And I always got myself into a good position through what I did through hard work. And so that's how that developed. And so when I got to, the idea of moving to Vancouver was all of my bands were successful. Everything I did was, was relatively successful on whatever level it was. 
because all of it was about seeking safety and it was about getting myself into a position where I would be okay if something happened. And I got to a point in Vancouver in Calgary where um, I was just like, man, like there's got to be more in life than this. Like everybody I know is just stuck in the bar scene. And by the way, I, I drank at the time. I had a problem with alcohol. So like I was a drinker and after we turned of age, everybody just kind of washed out of the hardcore scene. And I didn't want that. I thought it was fucking lame. I didn't want to go to bars every weekend and sit around and, and do nothing. And like, you know, watch hockey and just be like everyone else. I wanted to do something way fucking cooler. And everyone around me just wanted to sink into life and like get a job and stay at that job and then get a different job, go to community college. And I just thought it was fucking lame and I didn't want to do it. So I plotted my escape. I had made friends in Vancouver and uh, I moved out to Vancouver for a summer just to check it out. And uh, I moved out there, out here, you know, spent some time, couldn't really commit to it. I was a little bit scared to be on my own. So I moved back to Vancouver, to Calgary, uh, went to college for a year, totally bombed, fucked up at college real bad. And then I moved out to Vancouver to just play in bands. And although I went to university, I was going to university at the time, the whole intent was to play in bands. And uh, I was really inspired by my friend Strain, uh, my friend Sean Landy, okay. who uh, yeah, I work with Sean now. Um, awesome. Strain is like a huge influence on me and watching them go to Europe and watching them put out an LP on a US label, I was like, I can do this. And that's what I just dedicated myself to doing. So I, it's kind of a miracle I finished university because I didn't really give a shit about it. I just gave, gave a shit about playing in hardcore bands. So before we touch on your university, I got to mm -hmm. say that something I learned growing up through hardcore was that we would trivialize people like yourself who you said you never had to go without and there was always food on the table. And we always maximize our struggle because it was differently. It's something that mm -hmm. as an I'm, I'm 40 now. I learned that everybody's trauma comes in different ways. And to me, I'd say, oh, that man, that sounds great. But we had different trauma. So when you said, you know, I know that doesn't sound crazy. What I've learned to accept is that people who have those kind of things really are still susceptible to so much. And the, what you said about we had a very similar way and uh, it lasted only for about seven years. And then finally there was a very violent outbreak and my mother and father and split, but that thing about being on shore and not knowing that's, that's a major trauma that I still deal with as a 40 year old man. And there's stuff that immediately it's just you saying that. And like, I don't know what it was going to be like. I almost think that's worse at times because the uncertainty really keeps you unhinged, you know, like it doesn't allow any foundation. So for someone listening, all the, you know, tough guy, young kids who thug bands, but cul-de-sacs, don't worry. I know you got some pain in your heart, even if you got a full fridge. And as I, <laughs> I say that jokingly, but seriously, I think as I've gotten older, it's definitely easier to understand how people who may seem like they have more than us can equally have pain. And uh, it's just something, it's something that I really appreciate you sharing with people that you had that, you know, I think sometimes we put, especially in these kind of conversations, we only put our best foot forward and we hide the vulnerability. So I appreciate you being vulnerable. Uh, thanks, man. I'm going to say some fucking crazy shit here. The first time I did something insanely violent to somebody beyond mutual combat was to show everybody I was around that I'm that dude. Mm. And I don't, 
go a long time with overthinking these things, but I think as a young man, and especially for me, I was a late teens. I was just trying to be like the guys that were before me. I want them to see like, he's one of us. Like, and, and so like, when I think about that, I think about the years that I spent holding a bar and expect people to walk under it. And now that I'm older and, and, and loving this community even more and loving what this music associates, the best aspects of us. I want everybody who comes in to feel like the doors open and everything is there for the taking. And that's why I start this podcast. It's not to be like, Hey, I want to be friends with you guys. And I want everybody to succeed. It's like, I see a lot of bands not doing what we used to do. And I, I know a lot of people that can impart wisdom to show these new people and show these bands that are kind of just following this internet trend. Like there's ways we can work hard. There's ways that we can network. And here's stories of people that have done this to kind of make it easier. So that way, like what you said, like the acceptance, it's like this podcast for me is like part of like, Hey, if you're listening, you're, you're on the fucking team. Now check out what other people that I fucked with and I look up to, you know, what they can offer you, because I think we all have to lift each other up. And a, and a recurring theme on this podcast has been high ties raises all ships. So I, I'm in the same boat with you. I don't, I don't spend a lot of time worrying about what most bands write music about. Very few times is their heartfelt, real solid, like this really fucking bears my soul. I don't think we need to present ourselves as these perfect people, you know, like all the time, like you can write a song about being a fucking asshole and wanting to exclude people and being that space. And there's like, it's a cool record. It serves a purpose. It's like a tool in the world. And like, I think, you know, if you're feeling down, you could throw that in, I'll throw that on and feel like you're a part of something that's fucking cool. So I think that record is just as valid as some super positive record. I think it's got a place for it on a day-to-day basis. No, but there are fucking days where I want to be like, so for example, if I have a bad day at work and I just want to like sink back into the secret society we have, yeah, I want to throw that song on and feel like I'm a part of something that like the average person just doesn't know and, and couldn't know. So it serves a lot of purposes. And it's like, that's why I said when I first brought this up, like I don't want to be black and white and be like, have no nuance when I talk about something like Nails or I think Code Orange, who I legitimately think are a brilliant band. Like I like they bring forward like these kind of iconic terms, like you will never be one of us or thinners of the herd, you know, like, yo, like if you're a lost kid, you were drawn to that. Or if you're an, a, an adult that feels like an outsider feels alone, you're drawn to that. Where I think it gets a little tough is like within scene, like within the scene, then it's like, well, are all of us together or are there layers of that in the scene? And it's not, it's not up to those, those. So for example, it's not up for those bands to like, like police how their, you know, their song is taken, right? Like, I don't want someone from Code Orange to be like, now children, like don't thin the herd within our own scene. Like, no, like, <laughs> no, you know, like it's not up to them to do that. And like, I see like, so for example, like, fuck, you put on a youth of today song or like, you know, like, um, like there, there are things about like you could like putting an X on your hand. That's like kind of casting out the outside world and our thing, right? Like it all serves the same purpose. It's like being a part of something and I'm, I'm super into it. And I think it serves a purpose where I guess I'm going with all of this is like, I have personally moved away from, or have tried to move away from excluding people in a shitty fucking way of making people feel less than, or they don't get it. Um, I've tried to be way more merciful about like not 
calling people posers or looking at people as posers. And it doesn't mean I don't do it, but like I'm trying, trying hard not to do it. And it also doesn't mean I like every band. Yo, sometimes your band fucking sucks. Sometimes your band's corny. I'm sorry. Your band doesn't mean just because I just because I'm trying not to call people posers or look at people negative doesn't mean I like everything everyone does. But I'm trying to do it less from a who's cool and who fits within the little mold more towards like I can accept everybody in a reasonable fashion as long as they're not like racist or homophobic or something crazy like that. I can accept everyone and be with everyone and I don't necessarily have to like their output. Does that make sense? It makes sense. And I think the problem that comes from today's hardcore social culture, which is different than the actual scene, is that they don't have fanzines and they do not have the era that we came up in where you would put something out or you would purchase a fanzine and you would see a tape that you may like. And someone's like, this band's fucking just dog shit. Fuck them. They're only able it's it's actually a crazy it's a crazy culture right now where every release is the album of the year, every band kills it, everything that comes out because the person criticizing or extolling its virtues, you can see who they are, you know who their friends are. It's very easy to find out the person that can write something as minuscule as ah, this really isn't for me. And now even writing, I'm not really into this record. If unless everybody shares that opinion, could be a three-hour uh, Twitter war. So mm. this culture has now gone from having the free thought and the open criticism and acceptance. Like, oh well, this guy's not really into my fucking band. To your emote, I see young kids really emotionally hurt. Like he doesn't really like my band. It's like the whole you're only doing this for a couple things. You either are excited to be in a band. You want to be in a band so you can make your band more successful or you really are feeling the music, but you don't need everybody to love what you're doing. I never expect everybody to love everything I've done. I don't expect everybody to accept everything I've done. And I find that what you said about the duality, nobody in hardcore band label, whatever, you know, just a fan. No one is without guilt of some kind and has bad traits and I actually don't want to be a part of a society that only has positive. This isn't Logan's run, man. This isn't only good humans. This good is oh, you know, that's just because it's it to me, it feels hardcore feels more like Logan's run now than anything else. <laughs> it's like we're in a world where everybody has to be meticulously acceptable by the social currency of the Twitter world or the Instagram world. These poor kids, they got they got filters. And their faces, they're afraid to show themselves. And they're actually afraid to connect what they really feel because they just want to be accepted. So they echo. And I'm not talking sociopolitically. I'm talking straight up just music, just fashion. Like I said this, if it was up to me, and I said this in an uh, earlier episode to a different uh, guest, if I could do it all over, I would hit a sane amount of steroids, put on some crazy fucking Mad Max shit and just be the most dystopian, crazy, outlandish vibe because everybody is a character of some like, you know, very accepted fashionable state right now. Um, everybody right now wants to be accepted at the cost of building a self. And it's kind of like yourself is our self. And if I don't like what you're doing, then you're not a part of us. And it's a scary world. It's such a different than what we had. And so like, you know, you and I on paper look different, except for we both are beautiful uh, shaved heads. 
but there's so many different things to us, but we get along very well. And it's through music. And I find that the commonalities that we all found a way to get along or at least accept each other in our space because of social media, there's all these small nuances of character that, you know, it's easy to present one side. You're always going to find something bad about someone. And just like you said, if it's not abusive, if it's not racist, if it's not homophobic, we can accept it. You don't have to be the best person, but I feel like the internet, it's not like me saying this, I'm an old guy saying the internet, it's social media in every human aspect, whether it's hardcore or anything else, is just changing how people interact. So it's harder for a hardcore band to put a record out and not have the whole world tell themselves. What then makes it harder if me and you were like, oh, I'm not really feeling that. And actually a friend of mine, and this is where it came in. This is my friend of mine said, yeah, uh, this record, this new band came out. I didn't retweet it. And someone hit me up like, damn dog, you don't, you don't feel this. So now you're, it's almost like you're required he didn't show, he didn't retweet it. He didn't talk about this. He must not like it. And I said, if that's the way it is, half the records that came out this year, if it came, I know they all come, a lot of them come out on Fridays now. Friday's a busy day for me. I sometimes don't even look at the internet until like nine at night. I guess I missed the RT. So it looks like I hate these things by accident. So yeah. it's a hard thing, man. And I, and I appreciate you saying about the duality of people because mm-hmm. we need hardcore punk to grow into, especially at the time frame that we're talking about within your life, we're not adjusted individuals. This music doesn't magically adjust us. In fact, this is kind of like, and I don't know, maybe you could tell me from a therapeutic point of view, hardcore is at an age group aimed at age groups between like 16 or 17 to maybe 24 to 25. It's almost like our playground where we get to have our first good friendships, our first relationships, and we get to kind of figure it out in a smaller world than the big world because our, our our hardcore scene might have maybe 150,000 total people that are legit all in. And we're not saying, and everyone else is posers, but like legit, you know, hardcore kids might be 150,000 maybe in America. So it's a small, and you know, if you add Canada to it, it's the same thing, about 150,000 the, at the most it could be. So it's a small little microcosm community where we first get our little bit of playing around. And then, like you said about people move on, I think hardcore people grow into whatever the next thing they're going to be. And some of them roll out and other people are confident, like, Hey, I can have a full adjusted life and I can still love hardcore. But I, I, I think it's more, I also, I told somebody other that I feel like hardcore is like the playground, <laughs> you know? And then yeah. one day it's like, I got to leave and grow up. I got to have kids. I can't come back to this. There are, there are a lot of things I want to touch base on there. I want to go back a little bit where you're, sure. where you're saying like people are more sensitive now because of social media. I'm going to disagree with that, man. I think people have always been sensitive, but it's just more apparent now. Like the need to be liked and accepted by people in general, like not just people in hardcore, people in general is huge, 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 huge. Like people's happiness in life is often dictated by how connected they feel to other people. And the importance of being accepted socially has a lot to do with how connected people to feel to their family members. Like people who are really connected to their family members and have really secure bonds, like a secure attachment style, they want to be accepted by other people, but if they're not as accepted, it's not going to destroy their life. Well, and it depends what goes on for them, but uh, what experiences they have people with an insecure attachment style, like a lot of people in hardcore. And when I say insecure attachment style, I'm not saying they're insecure. It's that they're the way they, they form their relationships is, is uh, it's got a, um, you have a doubt of how secure those relationships are. So you're insecure in the, in the, in the strength of the relationship. This is like 
like very a huge issue for people in general. Now, hardcore just tends to have a higher group of a higher amount of people like that. So not everyone finds hardcore because they didn't fit in, but a lot of people found hardcore because they didn't fit in. And a lot of people didn't fit in because they had, you know, some troubles in their family. So they probably have an insecure attachment style. Dude, I can remember like growing up in hardcore when I was touring a lot, being in that space, like a lot of bad shit and a lot of good shit. Just a lot of stuff happens from people feeling really insecure and like when you say like, you know, it's like everyone has to like, it. you know, everyone's banned now or blah, blah, blah. Dude, there was a version of that happening for at least from my perspective back then. Like what, you're not like going to wear my band's shirt or you're not, you know, like I remember Champion offering tours to people and, and when we were kind of at our peak and people being like, well, oh, you're giving us like, you're giving us the, the, the B tour, the C tour. Like that's like, I saw you give this other band a better tour than that. And it's like, dude, that shit was happening. Like people, and, and I'm not saying those people were bad people at all. What I'm saying more so is that like the idea that social media, like hanging on social media or saying this generation is this or that, I would disagree. I think a lot of the tropes that are playing out, in, or I think a lot of the things that are playing out now in hardcore are just tropes of things that existed before, but weren't as obvious because you couldn't connect the dots from scene to scene to person to person. And like, dude, I, I see stuff that like, I look back at when I'm 15, I'm like, oh, that's just, me at 15 on the internet like there's i have say very often thank god the internet didn't exist when i was 15 or else Likewise. i would have been putting Likewise. the stupidest shit on there and like i look at i don't want to say like i think the hardcore scene is better or worse now but like i don't think it's worse like and i don't think the kids now have it the only thing i'd say is there was like a magic of about trying to discover bands that at least was magical for me like really cool for me and there was also that like when you get to see a show full of bands that you love and there's that feeling in the air, I know that exists now, but like for me, I guess it was like different growing up in Calgary where there was like a scarcity of being able to, to access that stuff. But like, I don't know. I think the hardcore scene is probably as cool, if not cooler than it ever has been. There's lots of cool bands. Uh, I don't think people are more sensitive. Uh, I just think it's, there's a, a instant way of communicating about things. And when it comes to politics and like really specifically around positioning stuff, hardcore is weird in the sense of this, like it's intended, it's intent was the voice of the youth. Right. But like, it's also wrapped in this like weird kind of fabricated moral fiber. And that's where I think some of the illest shit is because like, you know, there's this idea of like outside world. And you hear that a lot. It's like in the outside world. And I mean, I've said that from stage in the outside world, people are like this. No, no, no. Like people are like that in this scene right now, but we, we contrast ourselves against that. Like in the outside world, you know, people judge you and people use each other. Are you fucking kidding? Like people in the scene do that to each other all the time. I've been like that. I've had people be like that to me. Like, let's be real. Like where I say it's difficult is you have a young audience that buy into the idea that they're part of a scene that has like a higher moral fiber. And that's where I think a lot of really bad shit happens. And I'm not saying that moral fi fiber doesn't exist because like, let's say Sean Youngblood as an example, Sean Youngblood is like a legitimately good human being. Like, Oh my God, he's an actual saint. Right. So like people like that exist in the scene, but that's because people like that exist in the world. Like this scene isn't, isn't distinct because we're all like, like, and Sean's just an example. There's a lot of good people, but like, there are good people, but we've got this, like, we take care of our own. Fuck no, we don't. Like, yeah, like when there's like a, you know, some someone breaks their arm or and can't work or someone's kid gets sick. Like, yeah, do we donate money? Of course we do. And that's the right thing to do. But 
this idea that we've got this like super high moral fiber that somehow protects this scene, I think is, is bullshit. And there are pockets of that. And there are things like that that happen, but part of, part of the bad stuff that happens is predicated on this idea. And so like, if I think back about like violence in the scene, you know, it's like we grew up with all these songs that are like, you know, violence in the scene is wrong, but then violence happens and people are drawn to like, people are drawn to like being scary and being feared and being a part of that. And like violence happens in the scene and there's all this like hardcore supposed to be violent. I mean, who the fuck am I supposed to say what hardcore is supposed to be? I'm just one person in this scene. I don't dictate the rules of this scene. And when I was younger, I used to feel like I had to do that, but like, fuck, the scene's going to be what it's going to be. But I will say, if we're going to position ourselves of having this moral fiber, the one thing that I wish I'd known when I was young and the thing that I'd want young people to know now is like that moral fiber is, is based on individuals, not the scene. Nobody in the scene is going to be looking out for very few people are waiting in and stopping bad things from happening. Just the same in normal society. Very few people are waiting and stopping bad things from happening. You got to be sharp. You got to have a tight circle. You got to make sure you don't blindly trust people. And we have to hold each other to a higher level of accountability. So like when I think of shit on online and how people position themselves, I think that is the normal reaction that's happening in society of a society that has this like really decayed, like is morally bankrupt essentially. And I don't think it's weird that people in hardcore are very sensitive about stuff. Are they too sensitive online? I don't fucking know. I don't know what's happened for them. I mean, is it tough to talk about things online? Yeah. And I think you should be, people should be smarter about how they talk about things online or don't talk about shit online. Like it's one of those things. Do I think people are too political? No, I think we live in a really fucking intense time. The other piece that I want to add in about older people in the scene. I don't think older people in the scene should be telling anybody what punk is or what hardcore is. We knew what punk and hardcore were for our fucking time. And like, I can look at 2000s hardcore and be like, that's what punk and hardcore was at that time. And I can also look at those, a lot of those bands and be like, those bands kind of sucked. <laughs> like, or like my bands weren't that good or whatever. And there could be people from the nineties that felt that about the nineties. But like, I don't think we should be telling people what punk is or isn't because punk is or isn't whatever it is, is or is not at the time as by the people who are the forefront of doing it. I think if you're part of the punk scene past a certain age, you should just be really psyched to be a part of it and like move and flow with it in a way that allows you to maintain what you love while without trying to dictate to people what it should be. And it, it, these are some like lessons that I've learned just from like having, you know, hopefully I've, I've, aged gracefully in the punk scene, but also I've had some fucking ill shit happen. I had to learn some hard lessons. And this is me trying to apply those things and just be like a good member of a community while being respectful of what's happening now. I really appreciate you stepping up here on this because, you know, I, I, I sometimes when I have a guest, I have an idea of where I'd like to take this, but in the midst of that, I'm, we're going to change a lot of gears here. And I really appreciate you because you got a lot of things rolling First off, you've changed my perspective in the regards that I often say something similar. Like, no, that always happened, but I haven't been applying it to the internet and the way that we talk. So I appreciate you challenging me and correcting me because you're absolutely in thinking about your perspective. You're absolutely right. Those things did still exist. I guess it is just because of the fact that social media broadcasts the thoughts directly to our visuals all the time, it seems louder than it was then. And and that's probably the dichotomy between then and now is that we're able to look what a stupid box in our hand, what our peers think. 
So it seems more present. The only difference is I do. And I was thinking the whole time you're talking, well, we also had smartphones. Thank God we didn't. And thank God we didn't have social media at that time frame. But I definitely believe that your app, I have to agree with you. And I'm glad that you challenged me on it. Um, I initially intended to run down just, I like to build a foundation base of who the person is talking on the other end, but you are obviously <laughs> well-equipped to handle some questions. I think I, I would really like to start asking you, but uh, I want to breeze through this real quick. This time in, in, in all parts, whether it's Canada, North America, everywhere that we have listeners, it's a terrible time politically. And I feel like our music and our scene, it might be one of the few things where I do see a little bit more of a majority. I don't feel the split. And it goes on to the next thing you said. I'm 40 years old. I'm blessed, 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 blessed that I keep an ear and a mind open. I believe heavily in that beginner's mind where the minute you think you know everything, you don't learn anymore. I'm constantly trying to learn whether it's about music or unlearn bad habits and um, learn more about social, not, I won't say social justice, but the way that the social, I don't know, actually, I don't actually know the word. I, I you know, like um, I recently was told that, um, you know, I have people very close to me that are coming out as LGBT and I think that they were worried or something. I'm like, no, I think it's beautiful. Whatever you want to do, you know, and then I'm like, fuck, am I a guy that no one wants to say that to? Like, they would feel that I would have a judgment. I, I didn't realize from a lens how someone else looks at me. And I've been and I've been trying to learn more about what else is going on in these younger, hardcore kids' lives. I actually also, on the other side of it, I have a training partner from Jiu-Jitsu, Hard Carl from Jinx Proof Tattoos, and he's 50 years old. And we have this conversation all the time. He's like, look, man, I know what I listen to in hardcore. <laughs> and I know what I like. He's like... I come to your fest to hang out. I might see some bands and go, this shit is crazy. But I know if I listened to it, it wouldn't be for me. And I totally agree that the problem with hardcore people, and this is something that goes back to the playground idea. Most people have about four to maybe five, maybe 10 years the most when they're really active in a scene. And then they go back to the regular lives. But because of social media, they kind of castigate and start throwing stones at what's going on now. It's like, hey, man, you left the yard. It's not your time anymore. If you want to come into this conversation, enjoy what's going on, support that the scene is still happening, but don't try to tell people what it isn't because they're the ones holding the flags right now. They're keeping the fire going. And I agree wholeheartedly. Like, you know, I had to stop myself learning about how to, I, I communicate with social media differently than other people. And I had to learn from younger people like, Hey, why do you do this? I'm like, Oh, I thought we we're just talking. No, we don't use Twitter like that. Oh, okay. I got to, it doesn't work like that. So I had to say less and listen more. And it's things that I'm learning through it. But were you going to college for the therapy and the psychology stuff? Or were you going to your university for something different at that time? So I, I have two undergrad degrees. I have one in English literature uh, with a minor in religious history. And then I have one in psychology. And so I went to school to be an English school or to be an English teacher, high school English teacher. My mom was a teacher. So I was like, you know, I want to, I want to help people. I want to, you know, I had this kind of idea, like I wanted to, to work with people and provide them a better experience than I had growing up. Um, but then I finished my degree and I started like, so to, to get into teacher's college here, you have to have a certain amount of volunteer hours with youth. 
So I started volunteering at a youth addiction center and it just hit me. I was like, no, 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 I don't want to be a teacher. Like, this is not it. I want to be involved with street entrenched youth, like kids who are like in gangs, kids who are experiencing like um, everyday violence, kids who are in addiction, people who are being like, uh, who are entering into sex work. I wanted to be on the front lines of that to try and help. So I started working uh, at this place just as an intern, basically. And um, at the same time, I instantly went back to school, got my psych degree. And back then to be, to work in the therapeutic space, all you had to do was have a, a like a psych degree and a certificate, like a counseling certificate. So I went and did a one-year certificate while also finishing a, uh, a psych degree. And so I did that and started working as a therapist. And I was working in a therapist all in the early stages of Champion. And then my job, my, my boss was um, from the punk scene. And so when champion kind of hit a point where I had to make a decision, like, do I give up the band and work or do I give up work and play in the band? My boss basically said, I'll just hire someone until you come back. And uh, he held my job and I just went on tour for a bunch of years and did it. So like it, like I certainly took a risk cause like I was a bit older than everyone in the band, but I'd already finished school. I already had a career. I had a job waiting for me. And, uh, I was able to like take less of a risk than your average person when they go into a full-time band. And so the day the band was done, like, I think the next, I think the day after two days after our last show, I was back at work full-time and it was like, no big deal. Was the, was the decision to end the band uh, your occupation or was it just a, a agreement amongst the band? And we had to stop agreement amongst the band. So like it was a complex situation. So like as all, like everyone's band yeah. is a complex situation. So like, I had joined someone else's band. So I was going to university and um, it was like, I was doing my psych degree at the time. So I'd finished my first degree and I was doing my psych degree. And they, I got asked by Tim McIntosh, who was from trial to join champion on bass. And Tim and I were, were good buddies. And I had roadied one time with trial. And so I joined on bass and I didn't like champion. I thought their, their first demo wasn't, wasn't very good. Their second demo was okay, but they were like, they were like, almost too poppy hardcore for me. Like poppy is not the right word, but they were like too melodic for me. Cause like, dude, I love youth of today. Like that's like youth of today is like what I want to sound like in a band. And so I was like, yeah, it's okay. You know, I came in and Tim was writing the songs, Tim, Tim and I together kind of wrote the first DP. It was mostly Tim. And then I kind of like added some ideas here and there. It was before I got like confident as a songwriter. And, um, I was like, okay on the first EP and then Tim and I butted heads and Tim, Tim's like, I, as like an older guy, I liked him, you know, like Tim and I have kind of like found a place with each other, but like, I can say this about me. I'm not necessarily an easy guy to get along with. Like I am, if you're like on board with what's happening and if you're on board, if you're going to be like, if you're going to like suck up time or, or, or like I'll, I can work with people for sure. No problem. Like I, I have a company, I have lots of clients, like lots of stuff. I've done lots of bands, but basically like I go on the premise, it's always someone's band. It's like that person's band or maybe two people in the band and it's their band and you're in their band. Very few people. Is it, is it like a, a kind of a joint venture between everyone? And when I joined champion, it was definitely um, Chris and Tim's or Chris and Jim's band, but Tim had kind of assumed ownership of it in like this weird way, not in a bad way, but it just was that. And it was weird because Chris and Jim kind of like Tim became the songwriter. They looked up to him 
for good reason because he'd been in trial and, and was a great musician and a great songwriter so they looked up to him so he kind of stepped into that place but it was definitely their band and then like i came in and i started challenging tim and got a little like i was like i don't like that song it's too poppy like let's try and do something more youth in today and we went back and forth so we started to clash but tim was kind of clashing with everybody and he quit the band in san francisco because him and jim got in an argument and he literally quit on the street for no, it was like not a good reason. There was no like real compelling reason. Right. And it was this big thing and Tim quit. And I ended up being like, everyone kind of like turned their attention to me and the band was like, Hey, you're in charge now. And I was like, Oh shit. <laughs> okay. And so I started writing the songs and I, we did count our numbers, which I think is like, fine. It's fine. I didn't know what I was doing. I didn't really get into like understanding how to write a song until promise is kept. And I can tell you, if I would who I am now, if I could rewrite that record, it would be like way, way stronger record. But it, at the time for what we were doing, it was like a really good record. And I was really proud of it. I was proud of how it came out. The funny thing was, is like, I never wanted to play that kind of hardcore, but I always felt it was Jim and it was uh, Jim and Chris's band. So I wanted to stay true to what they had started the band to sound like. So like, I always wrote along those lines, but I always wanted to do a band that sounds like change. That's like always what I, where I wanted my focus to be, but I always felt I had to stick within the, those lines. Um, so yeah, that's how I ended up in champion. That's how I ended up kind of becoming more like the guy who wrote the lyrics and like, so for counter numbers. And so for the first EP, Tim, I think wrote the lyrics and who wrote like 80% of the music. And then for everything else after that, I wrote almost all the music. Chris wrote a few songs here and there. And then I wrote, 98% of the lyrics as well. And there's actually recordings of me singing all of the records, like kind of a Walter, a Wally sings the hits kind of thing for all yeah. of the records. So the end was this kind of, it was mutual and that led you right back into being in the therapeutic space or did you, what was your uh, occupation the minute the band was over? Shit, dude, I totally forgot. I'm sorry. The reason the band ended was because we basically had signed to Equal Vision and we were deciding about whether or not we're, we we're getting ready to write a new record. And I wanted to sound like fucking Chain of Strength and Youth of Today. And I just like Todd the drummer, it's not a hardcore dude really. Like he, he kind of like hardcore, but he was more into like pop punk. So like he didn't have a deep well to draw from, from hardcore. Andy Norton, um, definitely loves loves hardcore until he gets yeah. it, but he'd actually quit the band because he was going to go back to school. So he hadn't quit the band in like a bad blood way, but he quit the band. Um, and like, it was this weird crossroads where it's like we knew if we were going to do the band, we'd have to be together. We'd have to write the record, and we'd have to go on a whole touring cycle and all that stuff. At the end of the day, personalities were clashing pretty fucking hard, and we fell into the stupid things that people fall into, like. I was the dude that like wrote the songs. I booked the tours. I had all the business relationships. So it became your band. Essentially. It, it, it <laughs> did, but there was like a deep feeling that it was Chris and Jim's band on their end. But specifically, it was okay. like, specifically like there was like the classic singer slash guitar player beef where it was like, who's really like the, who's really like the main person in the band. And like, I, it sounds self-serving if I say this now and I'm not intending to position it because I assume we'll talk about this later, but like Jim and I fucking hated each other in champions. Well, I can, attest, last... I can attest to that just from yeah. when we would hang when you were in town. Yeah. No? Like we, we fucking hated each other. And so like we did for most of the band, but the last year and a half, it was like really, really intense. 
So like we hit a point where we just couldn't deal with each other. And I think there was the either like, we have to kick Ram out of this band, but if we kick him out of the band, there's not going to be a champion. And I think they probably were talking about how they could do that. Um, I, they never confirmed that with me because I never asked, but like, I think it would have been like the logical thing. Yeah, to it's do. intuition. Totally. And I'd already started Betrayed and had joined the first step. So like, I kind of like, it was a weird thing. And also if we'd done another record, I would have wanted it to sound more like a band that I would. And I'm not trying to diss on champion because fuck, like I look back at a lot of that stuff without all of the gym stuff. Like, again, we can talk about that later, but like, I look back at like promises kept. I look back at those times, like those were incredible times in my life in a lot of ways. Um, and there's a lot of darkness, but I, I also just say we were a band that had reached a certain level and like there were cool things about that and there weren't cool things about that. So the cool things were, and it is something I totally believe, like we always treated people fucking well. We always were cool to promoters. We always helped out other bands. We always made sure people got paid. Um, we were real respectful to like the system around hardcore. Um, we also became kind of fucking caricatures of ourselves. I'd say like, I can't speak for anyone else in the band, but I know like, when champion kind of hit its peak, I wasn't the coolest version of myself. Like I definitely got like an inflated ego and, but it was like super insecure because like, I always wanted, I always wanted people that I knew wouldn't like champion to like champion and to kind of validate us. Like I always wanted like certain kind of people to like validate the band. And if they didn't, I'd get like really intent, like really upset about it. And that's why I went back to that insecurity thing. Cause dude, I was so fucking insecure about champion. Like, dude, we were touring all over the world. We were, we were living on our- seven seconds. Yeah, we we're living off our band like decently. And I was so fucking insecure about our band. So like I was not the best version of who I was. And I can't speak for who who I could be. And I can't speak for anyone else. But like, yeah, like there's lots of stuff. But the other thing I'll add in is like being of a band of a certain size, there's like levels of compromise. Like you're dealing with fucking people that you don't like, you think suck, you think are immoral, or you think are shitty, or you're part of this system where you're kind of have to be like oh that person's a necessary evil or yeah that thing over there kind of sucks and i remember like just being like yo this sucks like that person's a fucking clown this band sucks i don't want to go on tour with them or i don't want to play a show with them or like yo like that record label is doing us dirty like we should say something about it and i'll tell you like being in a band where you've reached a certain level and like success is like such a questionable thing. Cause it's like how successful really is a band in, in punk and hardcore outside of like, let's say like a sick of it all, you know, or a terror or something like that. The level of compromise that's involved in, in, in sustaining something had hit a point where I was like, fuck this. I don't want to deal with this bullshit. So it was a mix between personalities, personality clash, creative clash. Did I think I could write a better a record that would be better accepted than Promises Kept? And then also not wanting to like compromise. Cause like, dude, once your band gets popular, like your desire to keep it popular is like really something that fucks with people's heads. And at least I can say it fucked with my head really bad. And and I was glad to step out of it. No, actually you touched on some things that I spoke with other people in private, but never on the podcast with, but it's actually, it's all good. Don't stress it. <laughs> I, I, <laughs> I love it. It's all good, man. Don't stress it. Okay. Meanwhile, my dog's on the couch, just quiet. Like oh, I'm going to chill next to my dad. It's all good. Um, we talked about this stuff off podcast, not you and I, but other people, but it's evident in people that I've spoke to on this podcast that popularity and success are hand in hand with hardcore bands. And so I always took it as 
Champion is going to be a band that doesn't want to be the band they want people that people want them to be. And I, and I think that's I, for me, you were already doing first step and I know you're like, dude, you got to check up a trade. It's so sick. You know, like you weren't talking about champion. You were talking about the other things you had going on. So then when you guys broke up, I assumed it was, I, you know, I really appreciate the detail, but I, I mean, a hardcore band down the middle, which is what I consider like a down the middle hardcore band has bad choices the further you get up the success ladder totally. and, and and it's hard to do. It's really hard to do. And so I, I honestly just thought you guys were kind of like, all right, we're at the stage where everything we do after this means being not a hardcore band. And it's like, dude, I have a lot of love and respect for, you know, sick of it all, terror, mad ball to a lesser degree, uh, comeback kid. Oh, uh, you know, a code deals with this harm way deals with this Turner style deals with this. There's so many bands that get popular and then the fucking weight of the world is on them to stay at, stay there. And, and, you know, unless you die, unless you just all go in like, hey, this is a gang. We're going to do this band. This is going to be our whole living. It's not something that you should want to compromise your, your passion and your excitement over. You know, I don't yeah. want popularity that bad. I think that's why, you know, there's people in hardcore now who write songs like, oh, we, we're in this kind of band. We're going to get more popular. And I'm glad that you didn't take that road. You know, well, I'm glad you didn't take that road. I appreciate that. The thing, though, that I got to say is like, and this is a, something I think is um, like Finn from the Punk Rock NBA, and I've talked about this. Like, and I don't mean this in a harsh way. I just mean like hardcore punk people aren't necessarily thinking about the future. And like when you get into something, when you do something that gets a level of acclaim, let's say it's like a zine or a band or a podcast or whatever, for a lot of people in punk and hardcore, that's like one of the first times in their lives they've gotten real positive feedback. Like I'd say for me, Champion, it was like, it was probably the first time I ever didn't feel like a total piece of shit in my entire life. It's the first time I ever felt like, oh, I'm accepted. Like I don't have to try so hard or I don't have to like do something. And funnily enough, like I ended up trying hard and doing a bunch of stuff for people and all that stuff. Right. But like, I think people in punk and hardcore, when they start doing something, they're not necessarily thinking where it's going to go. They just want to be a part of something. Right. And then they do it and they get a claim. And then there's this like, Oh shit, this is the only thing I've done where I've gotten a claim. And a lot of people in punk and hardcore, they're not necessarily thinking about the future. So they might not be thinking about their careers. They might not be thinking about school. So the focus of that one thing that they're getting positive feedback on becomes so important to keep that thing going where you can see people like fucking like, dude, like people get super intense about their shit and like how they're positioned with people, how they fit in the scene, who's cool, who's not cool. And I'm not saying this in a negative way. Like I get it, like the social landscape, like I've been in that space. I felt that insecurity. I felt that like deep desire to not lose what I've had or to like be accepted by people. But like, I think one of the worst things about punk and hardcore is like, yo, this is just a part of life. And that cool thing you did at some point, it's likely not going to be there or it's going to be there, but people won't care about it in that same way. And if you don't build your life in a way where you have other things that give you purpose, security, like financial stuff, then you're going to be stuck singing this one fucking tune for the rest of your life. And it is going to suck. And you are going to fucking resent doing it and resent everyone around it. And I've seen that shit play out in hardcore and punk so fucking much. And I've seen it play out in my own life too, where it's like, yo, like, I don't want to be the person that is this guy ever again in my life. So like, I get it, man. And like, all I can say to people in punk and hardcore is like, yo, think of the fucking future. Like 
I know there's like the idea of living now, but like, I'm not saying go to school and I'm not saying get some career track job, but like, yo, make sure there's other shit in your life that makes you happy that you can invest in, that you have a a community outside of this community that makes you feel whole. Cause if this is all you've got, this is a limited time fucking offer and you're going to age out at some point and you're going to feel like, holy fuck, what do I do? I reached an exact moment in my life when I was turning 25, I was uh, on tour often with shattered realm was still heavily involved in the crew life. Family life was all sorts of fucked up. And I had pretty much stabilized my life financially through being home from tour, working different construction jobs or working in cabinet making shops. And it was an interesting, you know, like one of them threshold moments where a lot of my life was going in different directions. And I had the opportunity to join a union and it was like, hey, this is something where you don't just say to the boss a week before you have to leave a tour, hey, I'm gone for two months. Hmm. And I look at this as like a universe thing. Like the universe said, hey, you're doing what you're doing, but you need you need stability. And the minute I got influenced by the union work, that aha, like, oh, shit. Yeah, I can still do this when I'm 60. And this is my job. And this is what I, okay. Yeah, I'll do the band, but only for fun. And only if it's, you know, like only if we can, I could do it around my job, you know. And I, and I now preach that gospel that you just said to a lot of young bands. Like, look, have fun. Go as far as you'd like to go with this band. But think about this. You don't have an, the odds on your side that you're going to be able to do this forever. And then you don't want to wake up one day and be like, holy fuck. And, and it's serendipitous now that you look at COVID. The people that have, like, you know, uh, my buddies in Wisdom and Chains. They live in Scranton, Pennsylvania, the Poconos areas. They take buses from Scranton to New York City for very good paying union construction jobs. So they never got to make wisdom of change. And they had to turn down a shit ton of tours because of work and different and family and things. But they're 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 going to have that later on. You know, they mm-hmm. like, you know, like, and I think that sometimes bands have this window where they have to like, here's a window where you're popular, hit and go. But then when things are dipping, maybe you should start saying, what else do we have out there? And there's no good track record to it. Like you said, it's not school, but you need other things. The other thing that happened is I started doing SCA stuff at that time. So I also understand like hardcore gets so consuming that you do need something else and not like, well, I do this, but it's still within hardcore. Like, no, sometimes you need something completely different. So you have a separate view of it. Like, oh, fuck. Okay. I think that's the only thing that brought me balance because my life was already going fucking all over the place. And then to keep me embedded within hardcore, I started This Is Hardcore, the fest, which gave me a task that kept me so excited. And still, even when I'm doing it this summer, I'm still so psyched on hardcore because it's something I think about every day. We met downtown one time and you're like, look, I'm in town. I'm coaching. I got this thing. Let's meet up. And uh, for listeners, I had a, I had a really um, I had a court case. That was going on for years. Um, Aaron was doing his React records. And he would send me releases. I was really excited for him. He was really kind of mentoring a whole new era of the kind of bands that he wanted to hear. And it was directly responsible for mindset. And had he not shown me them, I, you know, like, I don't know how long it would take me to check them out. But the most important thing, you, and not the most important thing, but the thing that I always am endeared to you about is you sent me a blue hoodie with a yellow X with a React Records, and I've taken like promo pictures of it. But um, 
I was on house arrest. So I had a lot of free time and uh, I got picked up for a warrant violation because there was snow on my roof. So able when you in Philadelphia, you can get locked up. Uh, they put like a Sega Genesis looking thing in your, in your house. You had to pay for a landline and they put an ankle bracelet on you and they tell you, they don't tell you, but you get told by other people in the system. Well, as soon as that system starts, you're supposed to walk around your, your house so they know how to like your, your area. But I was told by someone, Hey, if you go out to your backyard, then you're able to be in your backyard. So I went to my backyard because I had a heavy bag out there and I went to my front yard and then the guy was already gone. He set up, he's like, Hey, you're sort of hearing a beep, walk around your house for two minutes and that's going to set the parameters. Well, when the snow's out, it blocks the signal. So on a snowy day, I did what I did for my mom. I swept the steps and I was out on my front lawn, bat lawn all the time. So it was no big deal, but that violated my, um, my pro- probation, so to speak, or my parole, so to speak. It was like a house arrest violation. And so uh, the warrant unit came and picked me up in my house as I was making pancakes. And all I had on me was sweatpants and this react hoodie. And it's fucking the dead of winter. We've got 20 <laughs> inches of snow. We got 20 inches of snow on the motherfucking ground. And I'm just trying to make sure my moms could go to work. It's a Saturday. So I'm in jail. It's county jail. It's cold as fuck. And I was like, man, I hope I don't have to change out my clothes because, you know, when you're in county in the wintertime, you basically get underwear and this jumpsuit. Mm -hmm. But if you know ahead of time, they'll tell you you can get thermals and shit, but Philadelphia County is fucked up. So I'll get to it. I had this blue React hoodie that became like my comfort blanket, my pillow for basically three days. And then I was finally let out my my. My PO was kind of like, okay, it's not going to be a violation. They let me out. I had to walk in the fucking cold the entire time because the bus was running late. They let me out like two in the morning. That React Records hoodie is literally my, like my comfort blanket. Like when I have a sad day, when I have a bad, like that thing is emotionally tied to me. And I'm so immediately, I always think of you that you just gifted to me with this hoodie one time. So this is the level of our friendship for people listening, you know, like, Ram gave me this out of kindness that he was running this DIY record label. So cool. Screen printing, all these different things, like spring an era of hardcore back. And this one little gift, like, oh, this is cool. And obviously I love supporting and repping straight edge shit. That hoodie means more to me. Like if my house burnt down besides my wife, my dog, maybe my computer, that hoodie's coming with me. I can't. That's, that's how awesome. much, that's how much our friend, and it sounds dumb that it's something like a hoodie, but I'm always attached to that. And a couple of times we've had really good conversations. So I've always looked at you in the capacity to understand a dark situation. I had like, I don't want to say like a mental breakdown, but like I, so like that had happened and I experienced something that, that I think is a term that people can like understand. I, I experienced like a kind of like social death. And what I mean by that is like, it was one of those clearest moments where you know who the fuck your friends are and who your real friends are versus who your acquaintances are versus who kind of silently thought you sucked. And now they feel like Liberty to be like, Oh no, that guy fucking sucks. Right. And it's like, I mean, dude, I'm a big fucking personality. Like I'm, I've played in a shit ton of bands. I've done a lot of stuff. Like if you're part of punk and hardcore, you've probably, you probably have some idea of things that I've done. Like I get it. Like, I'm one of those galvanizing figures. Like either you're like, yeah, like I like that guy or like, I really like that guy. Or you're like, man, that guy fucking sucks. Or I think he's corny. Totally. 
that's the price you pay if you if you walk the path that I've walked and I'm cool with it. But I'll tell you like that moment of like really realizing like who the fuck my real friends are. I was already going through like a lot of changes in my life. Like, you know, those times where you've kind of like overplayed your hand, like you've got like a certain amount of credibility, a certain amount of like influence and stuff like in a post-champion world, I'd done TFS. I didn't, you know, I'd been doing union of faith. I'd been playing and keep it clear. I'd been doing react records. And I was just really used to kind of being this like wellspring where people would always come to me for stuff. But at some point, you know, I'd been focusing on my professional career more and I'd been less involved in music and I, you know, reacted and gone over to heaven. At some point I became less of a go-to guy and less of a figurehead and less of a dude. And I didn't recognize it at the time, but like my ego was struggling because it was like, oh, people don't need me anymore. And if we go back to like the way that I form relationships, a lot of my relationships were based on being like this indispensable dude. Right. And like, suddenly I was dispensable and I got like really, I didn't know I was doing it, but I got like, really like, I don't know, like passive aggressive and like, kind of like shitty about stuff. And like, that's probably the only time in my punk experience where I've really been like, kind of like, I don't know, like just real fucking shitty is the only way I could see it. And I got really shitty. And I was also like super unhappy in life, like leading up to the whole gym thing. I was like, fucking unhappy in life. And I'd been in this really awful relationship for years and like we'd broken up, but I'd like gotten in this new relationship, but I was in a job I hated. Like there's all this stuff going on. I was like real unhappy before all the gym stuff happened. And then when it happened, um, I don't know, man, like I, I, I went into the mode of trying to deal with it. And then probably about a year later, I had just like a fucking breakdown and that sense of like, Oh, actually there aren't just like people who like maybe don't like me. There are actually people who like wish ill on me and, and people who think I suck or people who think that I let all this bad stuff happen. And that fucked with my head more than anything in my life. Like, well, no, the gym thing fucked with me the most out of anything, but this, this is a repercussion fucked with me where I was like, Oh, Oh, Holy shit. Now that I don't have all these things to offer people, it's like what people really think has come out and like, wow. Like, Oh, like these people kind of think I'm like a clown and it was so fucking intense to experience that as like a grown ass fucking man and be like, Oh holy shit. Because in my professional career, I'm really highly regarded and it really fucked with me. So, um, I, uh, I had to do a lot of work about that, man. And I got to tell you, like, it was really good. It was a good outcome of this because one of the things it did was I got off social media I just really focused on taking care of myself. I really focused on cultivating my close friendships. I didn't go to hardcore shows for like a while because I was just trying to get back on my feet and like really like figure out who I am as an adult. And after a point, I got like an Instagram account again and I started adding people and, you know, I started like kind of like reestablishing some old friendships. And I've gotten to a healthier place in my life as a result with my friendships than I ever have before. Like I'm much, I'd say that my friendships now I'm friends with people, like I'm connected to people I'm actually friends with. I'm with people I'm actually connected to. There's nothing really to gain out of my friendships except for just being friends. And my tolerance of people who I think aren't real friends is like zero. Like I won't spend time with people who I don't want to spend time with or who I think there's not like a real friendship there. And it's been like a good clarifying moment because it's that thing where it's like, dude, insecurity and needing to be liked by everyone has been such a dominant factor in my life 
that being largely free of that now has, lets me be involved in hardcore in a way that's like so much more joyful for me. I knew that you were doing shit, but I always, I always look at my professional friends in a way that says, well, he's often like the real kid world, you know, like there's this uh, kind of like a Peter Pan aspect of hardcore where, you know, a lot of, a, a lot of hardcore people stay the lost boys and they yeah. never leave. Yeah. So I didn't attribute what you were doing to anything else. I thought, well, man, he's just be really busy because you would, you had started coaching and you were traveling more. And I have friends that just do this like, all right, cool. They're, you know, they're, they're out of the band phase of their life. They're in either corporate phase or they're next thing you know, uh, I'm going to get a pop-up. Hey, I'm getting married. Do you want to come to the wedding? Like there's always something that happens. So I, I, I didn't attribute. And I'm glad that you clarified that for me that you actually did have, that kind of situation going on. Cause I assumed some people have to disconnect from social media to just to go full in, in a business. Mm-hmm. I always find it interesting when somebody's like, yeah, to take down my account, I didn't want my, you know, my work to see what I have going on in the punk world. Yeah. It's interesting. Cause I have everything. I have everything from jujitsu to sword fight or my social medias. I don't ever come. I don't ever split the two up. So I mischaracterize no. where, where your disappearance was to, uh, just being a big boy. And I really, again, I appreciate your vulnerability and just being mm-hmm. honest. And I think that you sharing that with us kind of explains kind of, you know, like the other side of this. Well, man, Moving- I just don't, I don't want people to like, I don't want people to, to misinterpret here. Like I, and again, I don't think I was done dirty in, in any of this. Like, I think like, fuck what happened, what happened, what happened, happened where I will say is like, it's what I got out of it. And that's, if there's one thing I want people to take away from it is like, I fucking love hardcore. I love hardcore and it's given me so much in my life. And that's why I'm still a part of it. But what I did learn is over-reliance on it, um, positioning myself in a way where like my relationships were all transactional with people. And like, that's fucking- Can you explain that better? Because I know what you're talking about, but I think someone listening should hear this because this is something mm -hmm. I've said to a friend recently. I said, you got to have friends that are just there to bullshit and not be a uh, change of, and I used social currency instead of transactional. Can yeah, you explain that, that? Perfect. Social currency, transactional, where essentially like we're only friends with each other because we're both getting something out of it. Right. And like, we would have no point of a relationship otherwise. And the interesting thing is in like a transactional relationship, if they're both like equally transactional, like we're both people are actually literally getting a thing out of it. That's, that can have a healthiness to it. But if it's a transactional relationship where one person, all they're getting out of it is it's like making them feel secure while the other person's actually getting a thing out of it, like getting a show, getting a tour, getting a connection. That's where like the first person has a real chance of getting like getting sucked into kind of like abusive relationships. But when I say abusive, I actually, and let me take that word back, not abusive. You get sucked into a relationship where people are just using you. But the interesting thing is you're using them too, right? So it doesn't make them bad people. Like if you present yourself like something to be used, people are going to use you. Like a hammer can't get upset that someone's been using that to hammer nails. It's a fucking hammer. So if you present yourself as a hammer, someone's going to use you that way. And what I'd say to people is like, yo, like really focus on making sure that if your relationships are transactional, that there's actually like an equal exchange that's happening. But if it's transactional and all you're getting from it is like a sense of security and belonging, it's like you're using those people, but they're also using you. And like, that's not fucking healthy and that's going to end someday. So like when, 
when all this stuff happened, like I went through like a fucking crazy life crisis, man, like soul searching, like totally lost, like suicidal, like all that stuff. And it took me a long time to work my way out of it. And I'd say like anyone listening to this, it's like my mental health took such a fucking crazy dip, but I worked on it. I didn't run away. I didn't back down. I got like, I looked at, I took a really hard look at myself. I made changes. I did therapy. I got healthy. And I just want to encourage people like whatever you're going through, whatever the fucking thing is you're going through, you might be edging around it. You might be kind of like sort of dealing with it and then sort of running away from it. Yo, go deal with it. Get as close to that pain as you can get, get as, get as close to that horror and that sense of like, Oh my God, I can't believe this is my life. Get as close to that as you can and just do the fucking work. Like, cause on the other side of that, there's a level of freedom and strength that is there but also it's not like my life is fucking beautiful now, you know, like I'm going through a fucking divorce. Like, you know, I'm like doing all this crazy shit that I got to do to get by, but my life is way better than it was. And I, I'll tell you this, I'm happier now in a way that I've, I've never been as happy. It doesn't mean my life is perfect, but it does mean that I am equipped to deal with shit and not be in a state of constant anxiety, insecurity, and misery. And that's because I was willing to do the fucking stuff. And I wouldn't have been willing to do this stuff if I hadn't gone through a really tumultuous shitty time so anyone out there if you take one thing away from all this take away don't blindly trust people in the punk and hardcore scene or anywhere like trust people based on their actions listen to people's stories you know like work with people to create good change and also if you are going through a fucking tough time don't run away from it don't hide from it dive in face that shit but get help doing it don't try and do it on your own now you are someone who I would go to for so many things. And and way earlier in this conversation, I was thinking, oh, we'll go through and we'll talk about the beginning of champion, the end of champion and then react. But really you're, you're very well equipped to kind of break down some of this social stuff and, and not analyze it, but give me a rundown when you were talking about violence and hardcore. And what do you think for someone who, let's say someone who grew up not having violence in their home, but seeing it at a show and then getting gravitated, what's going on there that they're gravitated to violence. Is it, is it something that they wean for like, they, like they yearn for, or is it something psychologically they get excited about? Because I've always wondered, I, I, I was raised in a house of violence. There was violence in my house at a very young, and then we were raised and, and not like we were raised in violence meaning like we had a crazy neighborhood because that happened too. But I, I saw a lot of violent stuff and I, and we all kind of explored it in my late teens, early twenties, but I've always wondered why someone who didn't grow up anywhere near it and never was hit as a kid, why they would gravitate towards violence in their early twenties and they see it like secondhand through someone else doing it. Why is it, where's the, where's the attention for that? So like, I can't speak in generalities because I don't, I don't know everyone. I don't know the situation. I will say this, that like, so we've been socialized to look at violence, perpetrators of violence from two different angles. Like, oh, that person's a bad person, but if they have a certain amount of social currency, like a certain position with the scene, then there's a kind of like thing to it where it's like, oh yeah, but like maybe they're a part of something. So like, for example, like we look at that Civ song, Soundtrack to Violence, right? I remember my, hearing that. One of my favorites, even though we were exactly what that song talks about. That, dude, you hit it, <laughs> you hit it perfectly. Literally like had brass knuckles in my pocket at shows and then was like, 
oh fuck that's totally all about us fuck i still right. love the song so people can love that song and be like fuck yeah and like look at like siv like siv is the dude in the scene forever right he's fucking friends with people who are like terribly violent people who have had violence in the scene and it's like dude that song's kind of probably about some of your friends but you're still fucking friends with them right and that and that's not like a bad thing about him it's like dude you grew up in New York, you grew up with all those people. And like, I'm not the scene's fucking conscience. I can't tell people what to do or not do. But what I can say is within hardcore, there is this kind of interesting, like violence in the scene is bad, except for all those people who do violence. We're, we actually kind of think that's totally cool. And we think it's awesome as long as it doesn't happen to us. But if it happens to us, we're going to find a way to be okay with it in the end. And everyone's going to be friends. And dude, it's like, it's not as black and white as saying violence shouldn't be in hardcore because yes, logically violence shouldn't be in hardcore. And if you have people who are violent people within hardcore, they're usually going to express that violence on the most, um, the people they know they can get away with it on that they will get the most benefit from being violent towards them. So like some people at a show who like intimidate or beat up kids, they get a benefit from it because they get to do it to these kids. They get that sense of power. They get the intoxication of it, but they also get like people talking about them. Their friends are like, fuck yeah, you did that. And then there's the drama that ensues between them and the kids who are trying to stop them. Like, this is just a trope we see play out in hardcore all the time. I mean, I've been a part of it, like trying to like stop people from being violent. This is what I just say at the end of the day. I think hardcore in general is drawn to that dynamic of like no violence violence oh it's so terrible and then everyone gets into these these things like i just think that's a trope of like of an underground scene and a scene that has like kind of like all different ages of people there's not going to be a time where there aren't going to be people who are who get benefited from violence like they're not there's not going to be a time where that stops because we're all fucking human beings and there's not going to be a time where people say there's no scene violence should stop what i would say to people is just like hey listen man like be involved in, in what you think is really going to fill up your fucking cup. Like I can say as someone who like really tried to stop, like steer violence away from the hardcore scene, like I kind of wish I'd taken back all those conversations because all that shit was going to fucking happen anyways. People were going to do those things. There's going to be consequences that fucking happened. There's going to be people who go to jail. There's people who are going to get a scot-free. There's going to be people that I'm friends with now that I thought were fucking assholes. Then there are going to be people that I thought that I was friends with now that I think are fucking assholes. That shit was just going to play out. And that's because the, the hardcore scene kind of has that just built into it. It's going to be what it's going to fucking be. Do I think hardcore should be violent? No, definitely not. I don't think anyone should come to a show and fear that they're going to get punched or kicked. Now, are, you saying deliberate, are you saying deliberate violence, not just like uh, mosh violence? No, mosh violence, I think is like, All right, okay. I think people should mosh and have fun and stage dive. And if you don't want to get, if you don't want to get stage dove on or you don't want to get moshed on, don't go, don't go to the front of the show. And by the way, that's not a gendered thing or an ableist thing. Like, I'm 46. I don't want to get my nose broken again. I don't want to get smashed. I do not go up front at a fucking show. The nature of a hardcore show is like high energy stage dive moshing. You don't do that at like, you know, a lot of other fucking shows or you, you shouldn't follow, follow what's going on within the group. I'm talking about deliberate violence. And I also just say like hardcore has a fucking gang culture and hardcore has a gang culture because people from all sorts of different backgrounds are part of hardcore. And it's like, I think it's a useless debate whether or not that should exist. It fucking exists and it's existed forever. It's about how you choose to interact with it. And I just say like, I choose a kind of music and focus and, and, and path 
that doesn't really involve a lot of that stuff. I don't want to be involved in it. So I'm not involved in it. And I, and I just choose not to be involved in it. And it's kind of that simple, like just pick the, pick the direction you want to go in in hardcore and then go in that direction. Don't try and make the whole hardcore scene work to your perspective, like adapt to the environment and choose your path. Don't expect the environment to adapt to the storytelling idea that you have of how things should be. Does that make sense? No, it makes total sense. And in fact, that's exactly what I tell people when they say, well, you know, there was a lot of crew stuff. I said, it's its own microcosm that really actually plays more within itself. Mm -hmm. But there's after effects that the fallout affects everybody. Mm -hmm. But, you know, like if you, the old guys at my job say, play stupid games, win stupid prizes. But there are imitators and young folks who want to swim in that pool. And then when they're not able to, to make it, they'll be like, I can't believe it. it's like, well, you, you showed up to play that game. Mm-hmm. I have friends that have been hard. I've been, I've been friends who've been in hardcore longer than I have. who are like, I don't know how you guys were involved in all that. I went through my whole life. I never had to deal with any of it, but then there's oh, really? other people that they swim close enough that they see it, you know, dude, um, just, just pick your fucking view, man. Like, I love what you're saying. Like, dude, I didn't see violence in hardcore, like real violence in hardcore until like there was like a big push on it for a couple summers. But like, even then, dude, like I didn't have to fucking play all those shows. I could have done something else. Like there's always a version of hardcore or a path that you could walk where you're like, nah, I just don't want to deal with any of that shit. And that might seem like, well, I shouldn't have to do that. Well, no, you shouldn't have to do a lot of fucking shit in life. But I'll tell you the argument about whether or not there should be like violent people in hardcore is a stupid fucking argument. Like the argument that I would be way more have is like, what level of permissiveness are we going to have with how people interact with interact with each other outside of that? Like, you know, like how do we handle people who are, you know, like who have been sexual predators or how do we handle people around like fighting at a show, not fighting at a show, but like, you know, like picking on people and shit like that. Like whether or not there's fucking gang members involved or there's like, you know, some dude, some dudes who are violent, that's just going to fucking happen. That's accepted. That's just it choose a different path. Don't go to those shows. Don't be involved in that stuff. Don't try and make the environment adapt to you. It is a stupid waste of fucking time. Focus more on tightening your circle, being in the right groups of people, making sure that you keep those people, that you and those people are on the same moral high ground that you're really, or it's not high ground, the same moral path together. And that the people you're around, you actually know them. That way we can reduce the evil shit that happens that actually is within our control. Like we can identify someone who's like fucking shitty about like, being shitty with women or who are dishonest or stealing or scamming people. You can do that. If you aren't focusing on the big system shit that you can't change, you can focus more on the people around you and really making sure you got the right people in your world. Let me ask you, do you think that now looking, obviously we all have hindsight things we would change. When you said what, what pricked my thought was you said really knowing people looking back on all the people that you've met in hardcore and call friends how many people do you think would say you really didn't know, but had close? And then what would you do differently or teach that a Ram? Like, Hey, when you have these people around you, you need to learn who they are. Like, what would you do differently when it comes to social interactions with people that you had around you a lot? Oh man, that's a good question. Like, it's, it's really hard to look back and say what would be different. Like, not so much what would be different, but what examples or like advice would you give if to yourself knowing now like the importance of it because i think what you said is a lot of what's going on with the internet culture now 
Mm-hmm. You follow me, I follow you, you like me, I stuff, we reshare. And then there's a sense of endearment, but there's not really knowing, you know, like this is what I, I this is what I would say. Stop fucking pontificating about your morals and try and like live them a little bit more. That's what I would say. Like um, one of the gifts that I have in my life is like, I'm really good at speaking. Like I've got a talent around speaking. I can express myself well and I've honed that. I'm really good at pontificating. I'd say back then I was great, like betrayed, like, fuck, I could say some cool ass shit. But um, I think like I focused on how I acted and it's funny. Cause like, even then I could look back and be like, nah, yeah, you're kind of full of shit back then though, man. Like you're a little bit of a fucking dork, but I also, I was younger. Like I didn't know better. I didn't have a fucking enough of a mirror up to myself, but like, just to be really clear, what I'd say is like, what I would tell myself back then is like, make sure that you're having conversations with people that are more vulnerable and that they actually know that they can tell you stuff. They can tell you real stuff about people who are actually in your world. Cause like what I, unwittingly and maybe wittingly like fuck i don't know i don't want to position myself that way all i I can say is what i was a part of is that i was a part of a perceived group of like popular cool people that have like all the power and people want want to be around you and be in your world and they they want to feel that they're accepted by you and that that is not in uh that is not encouraging of people being like hey just so you know this shit happened and i think it's really important that what I would tell myself back then is like, A, like make sure that you're actually like having conversations with vulnerable people and that those people know they can have conversations with you. And however I would have done that, I don't fucking know, but that's something I would, I would have said. The second thing is like, take seriously what people say. And like, I don't think a lot of people were raising the flags effectively or no, I know flags were being raised back then about all sorts of people, but I don't know how seriously those flags were being taken seriously by, by everyone and clearly not serious enough, or I don't know if there was a mechanism to deal with it. And I think like that idea of like, believe women or, or believe people believe women specifically, but I'd say like beyond just believe women, like believe transgendered people, like believe, believe, believe vulnerable populations who are bringing things up. That's much more of the conversation in modern times. And I think that's one of the best conversations that's, that's started. And I would say that that, it wasn't that people weren't in that space before, but that wasn't like people weren't thinking that way in an obvious way in hardcore. And I, and I'm glad that that change has happened. And in retrospect, I wish that was more of a vibe back then. I learned a lot from the change and the, I will say that our social awareness was the word I couldn't get out earlier in a conversation. So social awareness of hardcore has really stepped up and it had nothing to do with the old gang. It's all the new kids and 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 kid is the proverbial I use for everything, so don't get upset. But like the new generation has ushered us into, hey, you're not allowed to say this. Hey, this is inappropriate, and you either can get with the program and learn why, and respect their space, and and or you can shut the fuck up, and sit on the internet and argue for why Trump would be good for the country, because there is no in between in a lot of this stuff. I have. I have failed at times not really grasping why and how to learn. And uh, it's something that you're going to constantly, you know, I'm, 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 I'm a 40 year old white dude with a construction job. I'm blessed that I could book a fest that people enjoy. I'm happy that people are listening to the podcast and it's kind of funny to hear kids listen to the bands that we, that I used to be in. And I'm blessed with all this stuff mm-hmm. and to stay blessed. I have to respect what the people today are pushing for and and support them 
and echo what they, you know, I have to, you know, give them platforms and try to help them out with that. The best way that I know how is just to be like, yeah. Someone asked me, what do you think? I said, I think that whatever they need is what the world and hardcore needs now. So I, I, I support that as well. It's just hard for me to, uh, sometimes I learn by watching some people fail because I don't, I, I'm not surrounded with the people of their age enough to learn it in real time. It's usually I look on Twitter and go, oh, would that person do wrong? But I think there's a good in failing and people learning from it. But I don't know exactly if some of the smaller things that I would say, like I say the cancelable things, I would say we should let people learn and prove themselves unless it's absolutely physically detrimental or sexually detrimental. I think that if it's something with the words, people should learn from it and get the opportunity to show that they're no longer that, you know? And also I, I get aggravated because I have friends that are very in the troll space on the internet and they like pushing buttons and they, and, and they don't realize like, dude, that's not cool. And the reason why it's not cool is because we get it. You're trying to be edgy, but we're past edgy, you know, like a former dude that I was like, Oh, I'm, you know, he's all right. And I stuck up for him when he was changing his life. John toll is like edging towards being like, I don't know if he's trying to be the next Rush Limbaugh. And it's just crazy. You're like, dude, you've been doing this for 20 years now. What the fuck is your reward? Like, you know, like there's no question he has his, uh, I would say like very conservative, almost Alex Jonesy moments. But I bring him up as a, I don't want to see 25 of John Toll in hardcore. And I'm glad that the hardcore space now would tear that person up. And he's kind of only, I know he's only on my radar because I'm an older dude. And for some reason I followed out of morbid curiosity more than anything. Yeah. I, I do want to speak to that. Like, listen, man, like, again, like who gets to be edgy and who doesn't is also often like dictated by like what, what band they're in and, and all that kind of stuff. And like, I, I, I kind of don't care. Like, some dude wants to be fucking edgy, be edgy. And like you get into fights on the internet. I don't fuck. I don't care. Like the, when I say I get, I don't give a shit. I don't even mean it in a negative way. I don't have Twitter for a reason. I don't have Twitter for a reason. Cause I think I will like tell you that really, I, I, I think I'm getting off of it. <laughs> That's how bad well, it is. Cause like, I, it's not for me. Yeah. Like Chris runs our band, our band Twitter. Like I don't even, I don't even go on there. Like I, I don't care. Like people are going to be what they're going to be. Like someone's going to say some shit that they're going to, you know, like maybe they said 10, 10 years ago or 10 days ago and it's going to come back and haunt them and they're going to have this thing. All right, that's fine. Like that's, that's, that's beyond my scope. I don't want to focus on that. I don't want to be involved in it. Like, I don't want to be involved in like violence. I don't want to be involved in gangs. I don't want to be involved in Twitter fighting. I, I only really want to be involved in punk and hardcore is like cool bands with something to say and the community aspect of it. And that's where I put my focus. And like, I can't stop people fighting on fucking Twitter. I can't stop someone saying some edgy, stupid shit. I can't stop people from like taking political ideas and weaponizing them. I can't stop any of that. And I don't want to, because like, who the fuck am I to say what punk and hardcore should be? All I can say is my punk and hardcore experience is solely focused on playing in a band that I'm super psyched on, supporting bands I'm super psyched on, looking for messages and ideas that uplift me and being involved in the kinds of conversations that I think like fill up my cup and fill up other people's cups and hopefully like challenge ideas in a positive way. And that's it. That's where I put my focus. I think if you focus on too much else, it's the same thing as like trying to stop people from fucking being in crews or gangs. Like that's just going to happen anyways. So don't even fucking bother. But that's my take is, and I've learned a lot because I used to be different. Like I'll never forget a funny story. Uh, when I was at the, um, 
uh, positive numbers, Posi Numbers Fest. Fucking shout out to Bob. I was at Posi Numbers Fest and you know what happened. And it all went crazy. Not the one that was the last year, the year before um, yeah. that was in that. That was the year, I, the, the, the crazy year I was in California, the year before I was directly involved. Yeah. So that year, the year you were directly involved, um, I was in the merch area and some dudes came tearing through, chased a dude, picked him up, Body and threw him on, threw him onto someone's merch table and whatever. And then, you know, that, that whole thing left. And I was fucking pissed. And I was like ranting and like, you know, I can't believe we let this happen in our fucking scene and da, 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 da. And Jay Pepito looked me right in the fucking eye. And I, and I disliked him about uh, after, for, after this for a while, but I actually came to really appreciate that he said this. And I wish I'd learned my lesson then. Cause I, I wish I'd really digested that. He said, you're not from the East coast. You're not from here. This is the way it is. This is the way it always has been. There's been periods where it's gone in and out, but this is it. And if you want to be in it, like, this is what it's about. And I remember thinking like, I grew up on seven seconds. This is not what it's about, but fuck, are you kidding me? Like Southern California back in the eighties had like gangs and all that shit. Like I'm not saying violence and gang stuff or any of that is like, is good or bad. I'm totally neutral on it. It just is. But I remember when Jay Pepito said that to me and I thought, not on my watch, not on my watch is this. And that how fucking arrogant is that? How dare I decide what will be the hardcore scenes focus? And I wish I'd listened to Jay then because like I ended up having a lot of conversations that I, I definitely regret as an adult. And he was totally right. And shout out Jay Pepito because I, I was like, man, Jay sucks. But Jay, Jay rules. I love, I love Jay. And Jay it Pepito, was such a- Jay Pepito just got 10,000 points of respect. I'm <laughs> just from saying that. Dude, now, he looked me dead in the eye and he was like, now, like, don't fucking be like that around. And it was, it was a really good, good moment in retrospect. Now I'm going to tell you the, the thing that I say when people ask me, uh, there's a guy who we now do not like anymore, but at the time he was an actual teen and he looked up to us and that show we were all vibing very aggressive but not maliciously at the time mm -hmm. and this is how this this is how if someone wants a one-on-one -on, -one on how things happen that gets immediately exploded uh, this is it and you know you you got deep bucket deep for this one my my young friend is a long hair with some crazy shorts and shit i'm bigger version of him but no long hair I mosh into this guy. He like, yeah, fucking psych Joe Hardcore moshes into me. I turn around. My young man, Chris, is emulating me. He's not in the gang. He's a little kid. He moshes with his level of power <laughs> into the same fucking guy. The guy body slams him. So he gets smashed. This is the world. You, you know, like, why don't you smash me? And that's what I say. Why don't you smash me, you stupid fuck? Like, yeah, oh, cool, I moshed into you, but why did you hit this little kid? That escalated to the bouncers. And this is where, as an older person who has run a fest, I have an utmost respect for Bob Mack. I really hope that one day I get to have him on the show mm -hmm. because he did something great. And I like to just talk to him because I like listening to people that did things and find out why they do them. But was one thing I could say to Bob Mack is get peer-supported security whenever you can mm. get security that understands what we do 
them guys came in, the security came in red fucking hot. Mm-hmm. So we're already, you know, Pulp Fiction. Jules, I'm a race car red. <laughs> you know, like he says, they like, oh, you're a race car. That's how we were. We were always amped up and looking for challenge. Mm-hmm. But that guy did what we would and most people consider wrong. So we smashed and handled it. Mm-hmm. The security and the fucking owner of the place showed up and immediately escalated it to it's like now you're challenging us and we're not technically in our wrong by our cultured standards. Mm-hmm. And they were their bouncers. I've been a bouncer of a club. I've been a doorman. When you're a door guy, you got to check the IDs and you're one of the only guys in a small place that has to bring people outside. Mm-hmm. So you have to read the room. These guys aren't going to be easy. I got to handle this in a way that gets people out. A lot of times I would say, hey, hey, I can't hear you. Can you come outside real quick? And the drunk guy, I'll come outside. And I'm like, hey, man, you're really drunk. You got to come back. No, well, you're not coming back in because it's easier to get someone out if they walk themselves out. Mm-hmm. These guys wanted to challenge us. We want to challenge them. And I'm, there's a part of me, one, one foot says, I'm sad that our ego and our situation caused a lot of stress for Bob Mack and ruined a beautiful weekend for everybody who traveled. Mm-hmm. There's another part of me that said literally the exact same thing you did not on my fucking watch. Who are you, you fucking weak-ass security dude with three of your friends that challenged 20 of us? Like, what superpower do you fucking have? <laughs> and you got to remember, at 24... I was fucking in my head invincible because I knew not that I was taught. You know, you remember I wasn't even 200 pounds yet, but it was, I had this strength of knowing that the people next to me, I grew up with, and I grew up, this isn't like a hardcore crew that I met these guys two years ago and we anointed them in oil. And then they're super figures. These are still my best friends. We grew up in the shit before we found hardcore. I know God willing May God himself come down. We're fighting them. And we're going to probably win because we had that love and that craziness. So I'm like, oh, you have three. We have 20. Why are you trying this? Does ego ride in that day? Yeah, it did. And it made a lot of things bad. And actually, in hindsight, I give full respect to Terror for saying, hey, let's keep this going. But as a show promoter, thank God that we have a different climate in hardcore now. And East Coast hardcore has changed drastically because of all the things that the mistakes that we made in that time period, us specifically and myself specifically that we don't have the same craziness. I would have just shut the whole show down. Hey, you're going to fight. We're ending it. Trying to keep the show going made things worse because then the people like yourself who had the thought, not on my watch, there were some outliers like, fuck this. I'm going to have to step up to them. And it's like, dude, you're jumping into a boiling pot of water. And that's how that kid got chased. He actually sucker punched someone who's like, Another non-crew guy got sucker punched. This is not hyperbolic. This isn't like covering our ass story. This is the truth. The two people that escalated the fight that would cause the chaos of 2003, one person is a 16-year-old kid. The next person was a friend who literally traveled from out of town. He's not crew-related, but he was like moshing in the back, and someone hit him, and that's the guy who got smashed into the merch table because... And then the bouncer started grabbing people and he got smashed directly. And then that's how it went bad. But it's interesting that it's not the crew guys. It's us reacting to like, Hey, why are you hitting our friends? But it's all bad. Yeah. But there's also like, okay, it's It's all all bad bad business business. and it's all not going to make things better. And it's actually, 
you know, like when we talk about people growing, people growing, but hardcore grew from that. Mm-hmm. And the cell phone situation, the Twitter situation, the Instagram situation, as much as every kid right now is hot on the A cab, if this kind of shit came back in 2021, every kid would be on the phone calling the cops. Here's the here's him punching my friend. Here's him body slamming my friend on the table. So we are we have not completely grown past this point, but per, in percentage and activity, it has died so drastically down. And I'm thankful for it. I really am thankful for it, man. Yeah, but it, it will come back again. Like, and that's that's kind of what I'm saying. Like, people are like, listen to this, like, oh my God, Aram is saying, like, you know, let let violence be. No, I'm not, but like from like a like a social lens. No, you're not, like, you're not wrong. The trend, the trend will roll towards it. It will come but, back again. Like, but I feel I, I feel that the world of hardcore has seen it happen enough times that it'll be dealt with in a different way. Or at least that's my hope. And well, I hope so too. And we're and we're and we're we're basically like sports on us. Like, well, I think tonight what's going to happen is we don't know how it's really going to happen. <laughs> like, dude, like, okay, just like youth crew hardcore will again someday be a fucking thing, and dude, you know this kind of fucking. There's some fucking bands that are going to come up and smash from that world, man. Totally, but like things move in fucking cycles. Of course, the whole like kind of like violency kind of thing that will come back up, and like there will be the stalwarts that like. You know, like death threat. Death threat is like for for me forever. I think like they're the forever. Yeah, they're forever. But they're kind of like the war zone of our generation. You know, like they're one of the pit bands that have like a hard hardness, where like the most thugged out dude's gonna love them, but like also the most like you know like emoish kid could be like, I fucking love death threat. You're in a death threat uh, pit. There's gonna be violence, but it's gonna be like, oh yeah, that 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 should be like that. But then there are gonna be bands that are like, oh, that's only for this kind people who like that kind of music, and like. Sometimes that kind of music just is the popular music of the time. And like, that's, that's just fucking how it is. And uh, I'd say like, just from a perspective of like, whether or not that should be, man, that's just, it just is. That's the way like societies, groups of social people work. Don't focus on fucking controlling the environment. Find the space, find the environment that you believe within that is right for you. Follow that path and tighten your circle and be, do the right things in that space. We can't control everything. Control the things you know we can control. And so, yeah, that's that's what I'd say about that. What do you think it is about posi hardcore? And in general, the, like, I don't know. I would call them stereotypes. I use, like, the Dungeon Dragons or LARP RPG model of, like, an archetyped. Like, mm-hmm. something in hardcore drives people that when they hear a band, their hair gets shaved or gets turned blonde. Next thing you know, they're wearing clothes that they didn't have. Or they're, you know, like, what do you think it is about the different social tropes and different uh, archetypes in hardcore that just drive people to change how they look? It's good guys and bad guys. It's, it's all the stuff that we grew up on, right? Like, um, you know, you grew up on movies, you're kind of drawn to like, the, you know, you're drawn to heat. Or are you drawn to like, are you drawn to Darth Vader? Are you drawn, drawn to like Luke Skywalker or like kind of Han Solo in the middle or whatever? Like, who do you want to be? Right. And like, you know, you get the kids who are like positive, hardcore. They're drawn to being the good guy. Uh, you get, you know, you got kids who are in the integrity. They're drawn to being Darth Vader. You know, you got the kids who are like, like more thugged out. They're drawn to being like uh, Han Solo. Like, and it's all fucking valid because it's funny. Cause like you can have people who are like, totally like thugged out people who are actually bad fucking people. And you can have people who are thugged out who have like a heart of gold. Good like good people, you know, 
like they they're involved in some shit that i'm not cool with but they're good people you can have total youth crew guys who are like the most immoral motherfuckers out there and it, it it's like whatever like choose your character whatever character it is doesn't say anything about how they actually are as people it's just what clothing they wear and like kind of how they position themselves within the scene i'd say for me the whole youth crew kind of hardcore thing or like kind of like positive hardcore whatever it is what I was drawn to it is I grew up in a chaotic fucking world and I wanted something that seemed to have more like now I can say cartoonish, but more like black and white morality. This is good. This is bad. We're searching for this higher truth. What I really feel about that kind of music is it's all aspirational. We aspire, like you think of that youth of today song, honesty. It's like, what a ridiculous song, but I love it. Like I love the song, but conceptually it's like, we should all be honest. But yeah, if someone gives me their demo and is like, what do you think? I'm going to be like, yeah, this is sick, even though I think it sucks. Like, I'm not going to tell someone what I think of their band unless it's a really good fucking friend of mine who I know I can have that conversation and and who also I want to have that conversation. Like some fucking random dude gives me their demo. I'm probably going to say your demo's fine. It's good or whatever, because I don't actually don't want to be in a position where I have to tell someone their shit sucks. So like the idea of honesty on a surface level sounds cool. And, and I think we can aspire towards that. But in reality, it's like, well, honesty is like a pretty complex fucking thing. So I'm drawn to being in that kind of music because I, I would aspire to be the best version of myself in any given moment. And so if I think of honesty, what's kinder here? Being brutally honest with someone and like living up to those lyrics or being kind to someone who probably just needs, uh, who needs a little support so that they can keep working on their band. So like, I view that kind of music as aspirational, being the best version of yourself that you can be based on the situation. And that's why I love it. And that's why I play that kind of music. Plus, I think Youth of Today is just totally sick. I am 40 years old. Mm-hmm. At 15, I didn't understand Youth of Today. But I had old heads who kind of basically said, this shit is hard. Mm. And, I, and, I had it, and it really took me to see a VHS and really get down. And then my the light bulb opened up in my like yo even though they're talking about some soft stuff it's not the man ball and the marauder and the biohazard un undoubtedly youth of today would be classified as one of the rawest aggressive bands in the history of hardcore and in the 1980s they're in the pantheon for me it's like if i could have a perfect 1980s aggressive hardcore show it would be af chromags agnostic front negative approach i don't even mm. think i would have a fifth band just because then for when you hear that music there's no question that's fucking aggression yeah. but what's interesting the dichotomy is they're super aggressive with a positive purpose and i'll Dude. tell you i and we did the reunion we did them so many times but the first time we did them was sick at the starlight ballroom but they didn't have the full lineup when we did that first show back of the the real lineup you to today, there was 50 people in the room just psyched to hear Wally just go through his baseline, like checking his base at be- three hours before doors. But what I saw from you to today was people from Chile. There was a child, there was a kid who came. I call him a kid. I don't know how old he was. He was four foot eight. He didn't know any English. He bought a ticket for our Sunday show, but showed up Thursday. And I got a call. Joe, there's someone in the box office. We need you. What do you want to do? I walked home. Like, What's up? He's like, he's from China. He doesn't understand that he doesn't have a ticket for the show. I said, let him in. He came from China to see Youth of Today. 
but we had South Americans wearing uh, uh, like a Argentina flag. Like it was imp- it w- like that moment in hardcore to me. It, it, like I, I'm glad that we were able to put it together because I saw the youth of today that I always hoped I get to see. And they were oh. everything aggressive, everything exciting, and every it was fucking perfect, man. It's so I'm so excited just talking about it. Yeah, and l- let me talk about you today. Actually, let me talk about when I saw them the the reunion that wasn't really them, like when it was like Ken Olden and um, Vinny, I think, playing drums. Yeah, it was Vinny and Vinny Paz. I was yeah, and, and Kenny. Like it was sick. Like, and dude, I was a hater. I was like, man, you today they don't have Walter nah, and Sammy. Like sick. they're they're gonna suck. Blah blah blah. Nah. But I got to tell you, I was like, oh my god, they're really good. Dude, but, so sick. <laughs> so Trey, uh, and shout out to Trey, one of my best friends. I, I absolutely love you, man. Trey, the death wish table was on the other side of the of the stage from the react table. And Trey sent me a text and was like, yo, um, I got you some vegan donuts. I got a box of vegan donuts for you. And I was like, cool, I'll come over after Youth of Today. And so Youth of Today finishes and I just kind of end up selling t-shirts or whatever. And so then I walk back. So Youth of Day had been done for a while at this point. And I walk back over across. And as I'm coming, I see Trey and um, uh, bass player of Blacklisted. I, I, oh, at that time, it was probably Tim. Not Tim. Um, six Feet Under. Oh, so, uh, Dave. Dave Sausage. Dave. Dave Sausage. That's it. Okay. Yeah. Walking back over. And Trey and Dave Sausage see me coming and they start laughing. And I was like, what is this? And I get up close and Trey's like, well, do you want the good news or the bad news? And I was like, give me the good news. He's like, well, you know, Ray Kappel just came over and, and hung out and, and he really appreciated something of yours. And I was like, something of mine. He's like, well, that's where the bad news came in. We offered him a, a, a vegan donut. And as soon as we opened up the box of your vegan donuts, we're like, hey, here's a vegan donut. Would you like a vegan donut? He was like, hey, kids. And said to all of his kids, Let's have some donuts. And they all came over and ate all my fucking donuts. Holy shit. So this is <laughs> How another. How dare you, Ray Capo? Since this is the This Is Hardcore podcast, I could tell this is hardcore story on this one. Uh, he shows up in a minivan with them little kids who are now. I just booked them shelter, sidebar. I booked shelter with our uh, last Christmas with Gorilla Biscuits. They all took their first stage dives at that show. So check this. Uh, these kids, they show up in like footy pajamas and a minivan. And we had like a rider set up for them guys. And uh, it's a one, you know, the, the club was smaller. So the back room was basically where people drank. And we let, we say, hey, yo, clear the table. We got to have Ray Capo come in with his kids. And he came in and we really fed them like a bunch of shit. But he was like, Ask us like, there's no salads. I'm like, we don't have salads. They only have like these French fries, but we got him a shit ton of food. But I think because of their French fries, he probably didn't feed them to the kids. And that's why he had them vegan donuts was probably because of that shit. Oh my <laughs> God. He's still careful, your... man. Dude, he's, right. he's great. Uh, Wait, so... I got, I got to speak about you today for a second. Okay. All right. Here's a classic example though. Like, uh, and no, no, ill will at all or nothing negative to say about, about Ray and Porcel, but I'm going to talk about this in like a way of like, when I grew up, I idolized Ray and Porcel. I put them up on this fucking huge, huge platform and like all those guys, you know what I mean? And like, like really one of those guys to like my bands and really looked up to him. And there kind of comes a point where you get to know the people that you looked up to and you're like, Hmm, you were just an actually a really cool band. 
And the, the thing that I mean by that is like, these guys are fine. They're good guys. They got kids, they got families. They've been successful at some things. They haven't been successful at other things. Someone writing a good song and even a song that has like, like philosophic ideas that you can totally base your life on. I mean, they're a good person or a bad person. They're just a fucking person. And there's conversations. I've never had a conversation with Ray. Um, it's just in my head about him stealing my donuts, but I've had conversations with Porcel where I've been like, that's sick. He's a cool dude. And I've had conversations with him where I didn't feel that I've had conversations with like, um, lots of older hardcore guys that I looked up to where I was like, eh, that guy kind of sucks. And other times where I'm like, yeah, that guy's sick. I'd say the only hardcore dude that I've had conversations with that has been conversation to conversation consistent is Walter. Like Walter, I think is just through and through like a, a great guy, great person, creative genius, all that stuff. But like, what I mean by that is like, dude, youth of today for me was one of five bands that definitely helped set my life in motion towards really thinking about how I move in this world and all those things. But those guys are good people. They're bad people. They're neutral people. They're going to have ups and downs. And playing in youth of today doesn't make them good people. And listening to youth of today doesn't make someone a good person. It's about taking those ideas and saying like, fuck, these are really good ideas. Like, these are really cool. How can I apply them to my life and be progressively better at doing it? So not just saying, here's this song. I now live that way perfectly, but born just like be progressively better at it. And when I think of Ray Capo, I think, dude, that's just a guy who's been applying his own words to his life in a better and better and better way. And that's what I love about Youth of Today playing again, because I feel like Youth of Today kind of hit this point where like Ray Capo himself had kind of like was clowned on a bit in the scene, like, oh, Ray Capo, that guy's like, blah, blah, blah. But it's been cool seeing him come back and seeing like Shelter playing again, because like people can see him as he is now as an adult and that he is like a better and better and better version of himself. That guy wasn't perfect back then. He wasn't perfect 10 years ago. He's not perfect now, but I think he's a better version of himself. And that's someone applying their own words and the words of other people to their growth. And if that's not what hardcore at least is about to me, then I don't know what is like becoming a better and better version of yourself. No, you're absolutely correct. In fact, the hardest thing about what I do in this is hardcore and my shows is annually I lose a favorite band mm. because of either business deals or social interactions. And it fucking kills me because I love mm. this. And I love this so much that I, I, I'm not, I take it on the chin for all of you. You need to be, <laughs> you know, I, I will get, I'll get my dick kicked in 10 times by bands that I know don't respect what we're doing, but there's a reason, like you said, transactional relationship where they do it for a reason. And, and I do it because I want people to have those reactions. So like I chase the shelter to come back because I want the same interaction with hardcore kids now that I had when I saw shelter for the first time, I chased you to today the first time when they didn't have the full lineup and Purcell is like head walking, even though he's the only guitar player. So you'll hear a bass live because he's so excited. That's the thing is he's not a dick. He's so excited. People are going off that he's head walking instead of playing guitar, but it was yeah. fantastic. But then when that, when I was asked to help create that first American show for them, that just means that a new generation gets to see youth of today. And I love that. I have the ability to do that. And so I personally agree 1000% what you said about Ray growing as a human. And I hope that everyone understands that for people that have lived their lifetime in hardcore, the, the Ray Capo or the Aram Arsalanian or the Joe hardcore, 
of the teens of the twenties is not going to be represented in our forties. And for Ray, he's got to be 50 or 51, if not 52 now, I believe. And he's always growing and not everybody, but a lot of people in hardcore still continue to grow and change and shed old behavior. And I love running into Ray or talking to him. He was just a, I just had to hit him up real quick to be on a friend's documentary. And immediately it was a 20 minute conversation. He's a great guy mm-hmm. and he, and he grows and he encompasses so many great traits. And there's probably a ton of things that people could say from 20 years ago, like, Oh, he was rude or he was full of himself that he would agree with, you know? Dude, totally. Well, also like you try being in a band that had the attention and being, being in that. Situation. You try running a fucking big festival. You try doing these things and think you're going to be the best version of you, man. Like there's shit that happens like, dude, youth of today were unimaginably influential when they were a band and they were teenagers and like early 20s. You don't think that would turn someone into a bit of a fucking prick, especially if they're viewed as this cultural icon at the time. I'm not giving anyone like a free pass at all. But what I'm saying is like, dude, that guy is like a grown fucking man with children. Like he's figuring out his life. Like you're not going to be the same that you were. You're going to be the best version of yourself now, or I hope you are. I'm the same. Ray Capo's the same. And like, we're not on the same level as that guy, but like, yo, like when you are in a space where you have um, more cultural space within, within a group of people, like, yeah, there's, there's, there's all sorts of like weird ways you position yourself and stupid shit you say and weird things you do. And sometimes those things are serious and they're bad and you are fucking idiot for doing it. And you got to learn a lesson. Other times they're minor, but people take them way out of context and make you out to be a fucking asshole. And other times it's like a mix of all of them. But all I can say is like, we're at a point now where like, if you're going to be involved in hardcore, fucking give people mercy, man. Like not if they've done some crazy bad fucking shit. Like I'm not saying that we're not giving people free passes, but if you got fucking beef with someone, we're in a global pandemic. We've got a crazy political thing going on. Like give people fucking mercy. Cause I'll tell you this. I want to give people mercy. I want to deal with people and be like, you know what? I thought you were a fucking asshole six months ago or six years ago, but I'm going to give you another shot. I'm going to be cool with you. And I hope people do that to me and I hope they do it to you. I hope they do it to Ray Capo. I hope they do it to people because it's a very precious thing that we're a part of. And I realize that we're all just trying to figure it out, but like picking these sides against each other is a fucking waste of time. And we got this cool magical thing that we could do so much more. We can lift each other up as you were saying earlier, you know, the rising tide lifts all ships. So I would love to see people. I, I really want to get to this thing because it's important to me because I, mm-hmm. I, I love where we went and I think that we're going to have to, we're going to have to have you on more often just because of how insightful you could be and kind of lay this all out. You are now a CEO of cadence leadership you have a podcast Mm -hmm. and something that i really when i was reading i I saw you on the internet obviously and i'm looking at what you got going on and then i'm reading your bio and then you have this thing about your coaching and it really fucked me up and it was your two your two areas specifically i have to look at my notes here yeah you have two areas that you lock in on coaching and because you're the first episode of 2021. I want to know just how can someone in hardcore get to the point where you're at, where you're confident enough. I don't care if it's just in any aspect, because you now done bands, you've done record label. You've done a lot. How can someone take what they're doing and, and, and project it the way? Cause when you do it, you talk like 
you literally, I love hearing, I love hearing your podcast, but I love seeing things about you. Like you talk to these business people, like you're Elon Musk, like you're so fucking confident. And I always, and I've said this on multiple other podcasts, confidence is so important to be successful and you can't be successful unless you're confident. So, well, part one, how did you get so fucking confident in what you were able to do that you were able to sell it and make an entire company out of it? And then what two areas could we all improve on for 2021? If, you know, in a, in a very simple way. So for a confidence perspective, always fully believe your own shit, believe your own shit 100% and be 100% willing to be told when you're full of shit. So this has been the secret of my success. And I'll say this upfront, no matter what I have always 100% felt that what I'm saying is, should be heard is important people should pay attention to it. And that like, I've got something of complete value to offer. And when someone tells me that something I'm saying or something I'm doing, or the person that I am is full of shit, I will really listen to that. And I will really think about it. And I'm not saying I don't get defensive because of course, I'm just like anyone else. I get defensive, but after I've worked through my defensiveness, I will sit down and really fucking think about it. And sometimes people point things out where they're fucking wrong it's their insecurity or they're reading a situation wrong. And you got to be able to, to notice that and call that out and stand up for yourself. There are other times where someone just, you know, they don't really know what they're talking about. And it's just kind of like they're making an observation. You can dismiss that, but there are people around you, whether they're your friends or your fucking enemies or people who are neutral, who are going to call things out. And if you want to be successful, you have to be willing to hear the things that are true, digest them and make the changes. Those are the two things. Always believe your own shit. And it might be fucking corny. Do you know how many fucking times people have told me like, oh, you're corny, you're kind of cringy or this or that. I'd be like, really? Well, I understand you saying that from the perspective that you're sitting in where you work for someone else's fucking company and you hate your job or you love your job or whatever it is. Like I walk in a different fucking world, man. I have to position myself a different way. I have to navigate things a certain way. Like yeah, like all of it's intentional. And if you think it's cringy, it's probably because we just have different tastes in things and you don't understand where I'm at. If you had to position yourself the same way, you might do the same thing. So sometimes I've gotten some people to say I'm cringy, but I'll listen to it. I'll think about it. I'll make changes where I can, I can make changes. But usually what I just say is like, yeah, yeah, fair enough. But you're just not walking in my world because I believe my own shit. Believe your shit and then let people tell you when you're full of shit. And then if they're right, make the changes. So that's the the key to my success, man. And I, I will tell you, if someone hits me up and they're right about something, I will fucking change. I will work hard and I will do it. Doesn't mean I'm successful, but I'll do my best at it. Um, what are two things that people can um, get better at? I'll say the first thing is stop, stop othering people, uh, othering people. So looking at other people and, and basically viewing them with contempt. You know, it's like, oh, that person's like this and they're like that. Because when we other people, what we're actually kind of doing is we're putting ourselves above them. And that's what contempt is. Contempt is about like positioning yourself higher. And when you position yourself higher, you get all sorts of like psychological and physiological rewards. Like, yeah, I'm, I'm better than that person. Very rarely do people say I'm better than that person. Although, you know, people say it, right? I've said it in my life, but like, we act like we're better than people a lot by othering. And when we're othering people, we're making them about behaviors that we think are negative. And in doing that, 
we're suggesting that we don't do those behaviors, which is usually fucking untrue. So move away from othering. Recognize human beings are fucking flawed. All of us are flawed. Sometimes we're totally full of shit and we're assholes. Other times we're wonderful angels and we do all the right things. But usually we're some kind of messy space in between. And to your best of ability, you might not like someone, but to view them as some weird like, you're like this. You're just fucking yourself at the end because you're, you're going from contempt and all contempt breeds is insecurity. That's the first thing. The second thing, get better at your communication. Um, the way I speak to people, the way that I engage with people, I've worked on it. Um, so part of it is my training as a therapist that I, I did that, but I spent a lot of time thinking about how I speak, how I move conversations. And like, if people walked with me from my day to day, my job is to walk into any situation and I could be with the shyest person or the most dominant person and I can set the right tone to the conversation so the right, the right communication happens. And if you're good at communicating, whether it's writing or how you communicate through text or it's how you communicate online or if it's how you communicate in person, and it, it's even better if it's all of those things, if you have mastery of how you communicate, you will always be able to make the right conversations happen as long as you're consistent and you go in with the right intent. That's absolutely incredible advice for 2021. Do you, I, I know that you are able to, uh, via cadence.ca, or is it cadenceleadership.ca, check out your podcast. Mm-hmm. Um, as we're going to wrap this one up, because I know we're almost at the three hour mark. Run down what you got going on, how people can check you out, and how if, if there's anything we could do to support you with the podcast and in general with your uh, business. Okay, thank you. Uh, so check us out at cadenceleadership.ca. Uh, it's a Canadian company, hence the .ca. Uh, almost everyone that works for the company is a punk. You know, a lot of us are straight edge, a lot of us are vegan. Not everyone. We're, we come from all different backgrounds. Uh, but our company is our mission reduce suffering, increase empowerment. So if you've ever worked in a job where you hate your boss, you fucking hate your boss, that's suffering. Or if you don't have communication skills and you feel like unheard, or you just feel like, God, I'm not going to be able to like move forward in my career, that's suffering. Like my job is to reduce suffering, reduce like negative, like someone who's experiencing sexism or racism at work, that's suffering. Like I want to reduce suffering. So that's what our company does, reduce suffering. But we also increase empowerment. We teach people skills and ways of thinking that okay, open up opportunities for them. So check it out. Like we have a blog. The blog's not that active, but there is some cool stuff in there. Um, check out the website. Hit us up if you ever have any questions. But a way you could totally help us is check out our YouTube channel because there's tons. I have tons of coaching snippets on there about all sorts of stuff. Um, please subscribe. That'd be a huge help. Subscribe, like, reshare our videos. That would be massive, massive help for us. Follow us on LinkedIn, Cadence Leadership. And then the podcast, like this is what I do on the podcast. I interview legit, like just straight up business people. But then I also interview like punks who are now in the business world. And I got to tell you, like legitimate business people are super interesting. Listen, because it gives you a sense of like, because I'm a punk, I'm interviewing them how a punk would do a fanzine. So it's like, it lets you get access to like, well, what are real senior leaders in an organization? What do they think? How can I learn from that? And I can tell you, get out of the echo chamber of punk, like learn things from different people. But the punk people who have been successful in business, that is some cool shit. Like we just had Rich from Instead on who does uh, Rocco's Sweet Shop. And that was one of the coolest conversations about whether or not um, vegan businesses could be big, like big successful businesses and stay ethical. Like 
here's the thing. You could pretend like, you know, like, oh, I'm against the corporate world, da, da, da. But you know what? You, you partake in the corporate world all day, every day. You're fucking, you're on Twitter. You're part of the corporate world. You're, you know, on Zoom, you're in the corporate world. What I encourage you is like, don't live in some like bogus echo chamber where you're just like throwing around like random, like big ticket ideas, but more so say like, oh, okay, if I walk in this world, what can I learn so that when I get into spaces where I have more influence, I can create the changes that I want. And there's a lot of cool things in our podcast about that. So please check it out. Like, you know, subscribe, rate, review, share. Um, My goal with Cadence is I absolutely want us to become part of the fabric of creating like real change in the work world. And we're doing it on a small scale. Like we've been a company for four years and I have a staff of 10 people and I started it just by myself. So we're doing something right, but the more people who can help us get the world out, the word out, the more that we can do. So any help like that would be appreciated. And if you have a budget, come hire us because that always helps too. I'm a podcast uh, person most of my year, especially Mm -hmm. when I'm uh, able to kind of zone off right now. I'm on a job where I can just grind and patch concrete most days. Mm -hmm. So I saw the post for Carlos. I checked out the podcast for the first episode. I'm now at episode seven. I'm going to tell you as a fan of Lex Friedman and quite a few way more nerdier podcasts than, you know, hardcore podcasts. You have set the tone that sounds exactly like some of these podcasts that are getting like 400,000 listeners. I think that you absolutely have everything that you need to be up in that space. And I, I really want to see you succeed. And for people that are, I mean, his out his obviously shows are mostly about an hour, maybe an hour fifteen at the most. The, it flies by. There's so much great information that uh, Emma who did the chocolates oh, uh, was an yeah that was a great episode. I mean, you what you said about you can you can exist in in conversation in all worlds is exemplified in the podcast episodes that I've listened to, and I loved it. And it was actually from hearing you talk about your podcast a little bit on the Ezek show. And then when the Carlos thing came out, I'm like, all right, I got to really listen to this. But <laughs> cool, man. if anybody Thank wants you. to hear something great, go to Diablo's Den and listen to Isaac and Aram, <laughs> where Isaac's like, I think I'm in a tower. What's he say? I think I'm talking to a therapist. <laughs> so fucking funny. <laughs> I feel like I peaked after that. That's like, <laughs> I get two, I get two pieces of feedback right now. The first is always, dude, I listened to that Isaac thing. And that was like the, the fucking, fucking funniest thing. <laughs> I, I, I love it. And, and the second thing I hear people are like, dude, how did you control that guy? I was like, it wasn't controlling. It's just that like, I fucking love crown of thorns and I legitimately love Jay reason. So like I was just amped to be there and it, it just played out. No, it was great. Um, thank you for being on the show. I, I really can't appreciate our friendship and I just really, I, I want to bring it back. I was, you know, I had this whole thought, Oh, we're going to talk about champion. We're rolling to what he did to build his business. And we got sidetracked. So maybe if you want to come back, you can kind of lead us into the 101. If someone was trying to build a business, the steps maybe later down the line. But thank mm-hmm. you for being the first guest of 2021 and those two uh, amazing tips to start off a better year. Thank you so much, Aaron. Yeah, thank you, man. And uh, last thing I'll say, everyone, stay safe. You know, believe in yourself, believe in others. We'll get through this. Uh, I'll talk to everyone soon. Thank you. I hope you enjoyed that as much as I did. I knew he would be the great, perfect guest to start off 2021 in the right positive direction. Check him out. He's got a great podcast called One Step Beyond. You can find it on Spotify. 
Also, we'll have the links on our website, tihcpodcast.com. Next week's guest, Zach Thorne. That's right. New Jersey slash New York hardcore guitar god legend. All you beatdown nerds who don't listen to Posse Hardcore, well, guess what? You're going to learn something listening to that podcast. Without Zach Thorne and Mike, there never would have been a beatdown. Zach is a guitar player from a little band called Bulldoze, which would later roll in the train of thought, which would later he would go on to be in Ages of Man and Homicidal. It's one of my favorite people over the last 25 years, and I'm so glad to see him still creating music. He has another project. He's re-releasing all the old stuff. And it's a lot of positive vibes and energy and some great fucking stories. So check him out next week, Friday, January 8th. Here's to the best wishes and a happy new year from me. You can follow, subscribe, tell your friends. Whenever we post, tell everybody. I don't even know if anybody listens to this, but I hope they do. I'm not putting all this shit in the beginning of the podcast because I already talked too long. So thank you for supporting the podcast. This, is the fir- this was the first one in 2021, and I can't wait for a whole year of these. Take care.